suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome, dear listener. Welcome, anyone watching on the live stream. Mm. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor the Iron Fist. With me, as always, Nilly <laughs> Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. Scott, it's like old times. It's just you and me. It is. Yeah, it is like old times. Yeah, mm. You have to go right back into single digits to hear just the two of us. Yeah. But, uh, Paul mm. is under the weather. He's yes. tucked up in bed mm. with a cup of hot soup or something. Something like that, yeah. Mm. And no doubt watching on the live stream. That exactly. probably isn't because his internet connection is as bad as mine normally. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows what he's doing. But he's, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> So there we go. All right. So, dear listener, if this is the first time you've tuned in, this is a podcast where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion and things going on in the world, mostly Australia, but also around the world. And we have a particular focus, of course, on religion. And right from the early days, we had an interest in religion and the rest of Australia is waking up to our interest, Scott, because there's plenty of religious news about it is you know it's you'd swear that it's um the news cycle has been written by the current incoming government isn't it yes it makes you wonder whether or not they are manipulating events to make it happen but uh it is yes so things like the Falau, yeah israel and now how do you pronounce this cousin's josiah just josiah mm. so yes dear listener we're going to talk Falau again <laughs> It's not our fault, dear listener. We can't help it if the, if the flowers won't leave us alone. That's right. <laughs> it's impossible to avoid. I mean, it is so good. When you... <laughs> it just keeps on giving. This is the this is the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, and it's so interesting. It it's, is. So, yeah. so, you know, if you were on another planet or you've been living in a cave or something like that, um, it, now we've got the issue of Israel's cousin. So we'd previously mentioned him as being um, quite active in Israel's church. Mm. So helping out with the father in the sort of readings that they do in their obscure church. And so we sort of knew of him as being active. But um, turns out he had been school captain at uh, St Gregory's College at Campbelltown and in recent times has had a position in the school as sort of a... Um, you know, boarding master but, yes, or something Yes, as, as like a that? tutor and a boarding house supervisor. Scott, you weren't a boarder, were you? No, I wasn't a Was there boarders at your school? Yeah, there were boarders at my school. What do you understand a boarding house supervisor to do? Okay, they were basically students who were out at USQ Mm. and they came in and they only worked once the sun went down. Yep. So they were there to supervise the guys at night and that sort of stuff. So once they were, once the boarders were put off to bed, then they got in and did their own study and that type of thing. But yeah, that was all they were. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, they had their, yeah, they had bed and bed and board paid for, you know. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So just to help out in the in the boarding, boarding house. school. Yeah. 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 So this is where it gets tricky mm. in terms of the actual function of what he's doing. So he, of course, because he's part of his 
uh, father's crazy religious sect, um, was making statements about Catholicism. Well, his uncles, isn't it? Uh, uh, yes, his uncle, sorry. Mm. Uh, making statements, he called uh, the Catholic Church's mass a paganistic ritual rooted in heresy, evil and devil worship. <laughs> so he's gone to town on, on that, on Catholic sort of mass, while working in a Catholic institution in a position which is more than just a t- math teacher, mm. let me say. So in the past... One would have thought that if you were in a position as a boarding master, or I don't know, that's what we used to mm. call them back at grammar was boarding masters, mm. one would have thought that you're being there and you've got to provide some sort of pastoral care and you must have some sort of nod to the religion of the school, one would have thought. More so than a math teacher, for Exactly, sure. yeah. Also, so, you know, in the past we've said that a school shouldn't be able to sack a gay math teacher just for being gay. Mm-hmm. We never really explored the possibility that the gay math teacher might say publicly and, and declare, this whole Catholic church business is a paganistic <laughs> ritual rooted in heresy, <laughs> evil and devil worship. I mean, if he had, I'd say you'd probably... You're probably asking to get it sacked. Yes. Yeah. And probably the schools would have been within their rights. You know, if you're, if you're just doing your normal thing and not saying anything... <clears throat> I don't think they can – just because you're living a gay lifestyle would not be – Would not be reason to sack you. No. no. But if you're actually coming out with these sorts of declaratory statements, I would have thought that, that a gay man teacher yeah. – yeah. So, So in this case, I take the view because of the nature of his job and because of the statements that he made that made him basically ineligible to perform his job, which to me is the key criteria – um, I would have thought that they're within their rights to sack him. What do you reckon? I would have thought so, yeah. Mm. yeah. Of course, the conundrum for the religious right-wingers is... That which religious freedom do they protect? That's right, because they've openly declared, well, people shouldn't be sacked for merely declaring their religious viewpoint. Mm. In the case of Israel Folau, mm-hmm. here we've got a guy who's merely declaring <laughs> his religious viewpoint, <laughs> and what they're saying is, well... The church has got a an ethos about it. It's it's relevant to them, whereas a rugby union um, association doesn't have an ethos that it could be relevant to. That's their argument. Well, that's mm. their argument, but mm. you know, I don't think it holds water. Mm. They, they've got you know you've you've got to you've got to stand. If they're going to, if they're going to stand up for Israel for now, then they should stand up for Josiah as well. Yes, but yeah. they don't know which side which side of the religious freedom to sit on. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's hilarious. I can imagine the Australian Christian lobby were tearing themselves in half over this. So. Mm. Yeah. So they've got to, they've got to explore the, um, the edges of all this, which they, you know, the bald statement of, well, people shouldn't be sacked for making religious statements now has to be modified and the exceptions given. So it mm. uh, makes it trickier for them. It's just an absolutely beautiful sort of... It's uh, twist in the tail. Absolutely come up. hilarious. Thank mm. you very much, Josiah. You yes. have warmed the cockles of our heart. <laughs> yes. Hey, the the stream is working this time. So um, we've got Joe and Tony both saying it's looking good. And so, yeah. Is that Joe we know? Uh, yes, that is the Joe we know. G'day, Joe. How yeah. are you? And so, g'day, Tony. And Tony we know as well, who was at the. Yes, I remember uh, Tony. Yes. Um, yeah. Meet up at the. 
Newstead. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other one might be Paul, I think. Oh, right. It says the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, and I didn't post it, so it must be Paul. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, one thing about this is, you know, one of um, 12th Man's things is that, you know, education solves everything. Yeah. Josiah is well educated. Mm-hmm. He was school captain in 2016. He finished equal eighth in the state in HSC religious studies and had an ATAR score of 93.75. So, Which is bloody good, is yeah. It? Yeah. So anyway, eighth in the state for religious studies um, mm. just goes to show all the education in the world you can still... You can still stuff it up, can't you? can, you? yeah. Mm. So... Um, yeah, this is the whole point. I mean, I'm sorry, Paul, you're not mm. here to defend yourself, but education can't solve everything. Mm. It can go a hell of a long way, but it can't solve everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that, Paul. Mm. Right. So uh, also at the same time, well, in terms of freedoms and uh, and well, more freedom of speech issue here, Christina Keneally, our favourite Catholic, Scott, Shall I quote from her? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We should not allow career bigots, a person who spreads hate speech about Muslims, about women, about gay and lesbian people, to enter our country with the express intent of undermining equality, Senator Keneally said on Tuesday. This is about a guy called Mr. Kazam. Kazam, yeah. 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 Um, Now, I gather he's some extreme right-wing speaker from the UK, is he? He's a former British minister. Right. Uh, uh, no, he, he was – sorry, I was reading something about what he said about a former British minister. So he's some sort of UK speaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, we'll give some of the stuff he said. He said the Quran is fundamentally evil. Well, it's very hard to argue with that. Mm. <laughs> he tweeted that the Scottish National Party leader Nicola Sturgeon's legs should be taped shut following a miscarriage so she can't reproduce. That's a bit harsh. It's ugly. Yeah. Very ugly. Mm. Um, he's also, in another tweet, said former British minister was in the special needs class at school and once described a female political rival as a wrinkly old ginger bird. So these, these though, are ugly insults. Yeah. They're not, they're not things where, you know, like when I argue with the 12th man about these anti-vaccinators who come to Australia, mm. you can cause damage in their arrival by uh, if they convincing people, people not to vaccinate, not to vaccinate. Mm. Uh, you know, a sort of a, a real damage could result from their visit. This guy's just plain ugly. He is very nasty. I don't think this, is quali- this qualifies for banning him from Australia. No, the only thing that's possibly, you know, the Quran being fundamentally evil, you and I can say, yes, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't. That's probably the only thing he said that might you might think about banning him, but even then you just gotta to think to yourself, well, religion's all up for grabs, so you know, yep. they've gotta they've gotta put up with it, don't yep. they? So I don't think that Keneally should be getting a knickers in a twist over this myself. No. I think there's bigger fish to fry. Absolutely there are. And yeah. A lot of them are so, in her party. So I think uh, I think Kazam should be let in and I think it's wrong for him to be kept out. Hmm. We've got a lot of people on the um, uh, sending messages, so hello to Jimmy and to others. And I won't keep commenting for everything you say as we go <laughs> along because we'll just get diverted away all the time. So um, so bear with me if we don't, you know, mention you immediately or don't mention your argument. And, you know, 
when we Are talk we about some arguments they're already arguing with us because uh, Joe said education does not equal critical thinking. So Josiah may have been educated with facts and figures, but perhaps not educated with critical thinking or hasn't applied critical thinking. Well, so, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think Paul said not just any kind of education. So <laughs> there we go. Okay. They're arguing with us in the chat room. Um, <laughs> that's fun. That's what we wanted, wasn't it? It yeah. is. But I've got to be conscious of not being too distracted by mm. it and just running through things and maybe catching up with it towards the end of the episode as we go. So no bear with us there in the chat room. Right. Um, a religious freedom protest in Sydney, Scott. Good turnout. Really? Mm. Uh, there was um, 3,000 people turned up. Really? Mm. To protest for freedom no, of religion? No, uh, protesting against the exemptions that are on the way in a Religious Freedom Act. So oh, mostly organised by the gay and lesbian community. Yeah. You can see the writing on the wall yeah. in a Freedom From Religion Act. So... Yeah, 3,000 people packed Sydney's Taylor Square. That's a good number. That is a really good number, yeah. Mm. So that shows people are concerned, at least in the gay and lesbian community, because they know what it's, it's aimed at them. Well, mm. they know it's aimed at them and that sort of thing. I mean, mm. there was that uh, guy from the National Secular Lobby, I can't remember what his name was. He's a former school teacher that was sacked for being gay. Mm. You know, it's... I think you're right. They can see the writing on the wall. They understand what's coming and most of it's aimed their way. Mm. So, yeah. Can't wait for somebody to organise one here in Brisbane. Yeah, because I'll turn up. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe Robin Bristow, if you're listening, Robin. Yeah. He might, he'd be up for that. Mm. I think. Mm. Uh, and also in New South Wales, they are discussing abortion law down there. They are. Now, I always thought New South Wales is supposed to be more progressive than Queensland is, but apparently not because they've still got they've still got it criminalised in the criminal code, mm. which strikes me as really bizarre because I always thought there were abortion clinics in New South Wales. They don't have the same... They haven't had the same uh, freedom to perform abortions as right. we have now got in Queensland. Queensland. Yeah. I think Queensland copied Victoria. Mm. Well, now the new... I didn't look at the Victorian legislation, but I looked at the proposed New South Wales bill and it's almost identical to the Queensland bill, right. which I suspect was almost identical to the Victorian bill. So, mm. um, so this one is basically, well, uh, I've, I've looked at the bill and like ours in Queensland, it says, Scott, that a medical practitioner may perform a termination on a person who is um, uh, not more than 22 weeks pregnant, full stop. So Six months. So not more than 22 weeks pregnant, it's just go ahead. Mm. Medical practitioner can do it. After 22 weeks, you need uh, the medical, only if the medical practitioner considers that in all the circumstances the termination should be performed and the medical practitioner consults with another medical practitioner who thinks the same. And in considering whether it should be performed, um, a medical practitioner must consider A all relevant medical circumstances, B, the person's current and future physical, psychological and social circumstances, and C, the professional standards and guidelines that apply to the medical practitioner in relation to the performance of the termination. So let's imagine, for example, you know, a lady, for whatever reason, is not scanned until uh, 23 weeks and finds that they have a Down syndrome baby. Um, what's the doctor going to do? What's their decision going to be? 
are they going to consider that they're able to terminate the pregnancy or not? What was that um, thing that it, they said you had to take into account? All relevant, circumstances. All relevant medical circumstances, the person's current and future physical, psychological and social circumstances and the professional standards and guidelines that apply to medical practitioners in relation to performance of termination. So I'm putting it to you, Scott. That they probably would be barred from performing a termination basically on the basis that the child's got Down syndrome, wouldn't they? No. They wouldn't? No, I don't think so. I think this is a very subjective test. It is extremely subjective, I know that. I was just trying to... We've basically created laws that, that make a subjective decision in many ways, for the, for the Medicos. And yeah. I would think it's possible that you could go to one doctor who says no. And then you could go to another one that says yes. Mm. Yeah. So before you arrived, I had quickly Googled something and um, ah, it's, it's by this sort of lawyer ethics guy, Julian Savulescu, and... He referred to a survey done in the UK when they brought in kind of similar provisions. This is back in 1993, a survey done by a female Dr Green or a, a survey, it was certainly a female I think. Anyway, Green performed a survey of 391 obstetric consultants in the UK and asked them how late they would be prepared to offer termination of pregnancy for anencephaly, spina bifida and Down syndrome. So 89% of consultants would offer termination of pregnancy for anencephaly, sorry, anencephaly at 24 weeks. So 89% would terminate up to 24 weeks. This fell to 64% after 24 weeks. So that's two-thirds. Mm. So two-thirds would, would offer it, yeah. but one-third wouldn't. Mm. It's quite a big difference. It is, yeah. So there'll be a bit of... Uh, also, for Down syndrome, 60% would offer termination of pregnancy at 24 weeks, and this fell to 13% after 24 weeks. And for spina bifida, 53% um, at 24 weeks and 21% after 24 weeks. So quite mm. a big difference. There is, and yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that we've basically just... See, what's the six-month thing? Is that when a child is basically viable if it is born or I th- not? I think around that 24, 25, 20, 24, 25, 26 weeks is, is all the borderline viable. So, yeah. you know, it used to be your chances were quite slim at 26. Now I think now it's, it's 25 weeks yeah. and, and eventually it'll probably be 24, you know. Yeah. But, um, so that's, yeah. that's where I think the... the it mm. starts to drop off because they could start to see this collection of cells yes. being a child. Yeah. yeah. And and that's why that sort of legislation is at <laughs> 22 weeks because it's basically saying at 22 weeks there's no doubt that a child just can't survive yes. if born yeah. at 22 weeks. It's not self-sufficient. So, mm. yeah. Anyway, it's just interesting that we've, you know, I'm in favour of the provision but it's interesting that, and I don't really know another way around it because it could be that, a child could have massive um, deformities or, or things that just means it's not going to survive or it's going to be extremely um, 
I don't know if retarded is an acceptable word, but uh, meant, you know, have enormous difficulties and you yeah. might not discover it till late for whatever reason. So you need to have flexibility in the system. Yeah, I agree. Mm. You know, it's one of those things you think to yourself, well, 22 weeks, that's fine, mm. but then you might discover, like you say, they might get the scans and everything after 22 weeks, in which case they then discover it. So mm. uh, anyway. Mm. Right. Um, uh, where are we? Uh Seal of the confessional in Tasmania. Laws have passed the lower house in Tasmania, which would require Catholic priests to tell authorities if they learn of child sexual abuse during the confessional. Breach the seal. Mm -hmm. So it's got to go through the upper house. Guess who's complaining? Well, the Christians would be. Yeah, Catholics, definitely. Yeah, the Catholics would be, you know. Yes, um, quote from um, Hobart's Catholic Archbishop who said, the law as currently drafted requires priests to violate the most solemn and sacred act between the penitent and God. There we go. <sighs> Too bad. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, your your get, sacred... Get over it. Yeah. Yes, your, your idea of sacred is just an ideology. Exactly. And we happen to disagree with it. Yeah. So they can all get stuffed. Nothing special. Mm. Um. Shootings in the USA. Yeah, again. again, that was really ridiculous, wasn't it? And I've been reading a fair bit on the um, – because, you know, you often get the whole why don't they just do what Australia did? Mm. And the conversation went in and looked at that and they didn't believe it would work in the US because they've got this mentality about guns mm. where they honestly and truly believe that the Second Amendment was written for them. Mm. And it's really quite sad when you think about it because they honestly believe that one bloke with an AR-15 can stand up to the United States government. Well, the United States government's going to do is call in an airstrike and then it's over. Right. You know, so... <laughs> you know, if, if I was in a shopping centre or a school as an innocent person and I yeah. happened to have a gun and there was a shooter and I knew that a SWAT team was coming in... I'd wait for the SWAT team. And I'd get rid of my gun. Yes. Because I thought if I'm holding a gun, someone's going to shoot, shoot me. me. Exactly. I'd, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd, well, I'd be, get, I'd be getting ready to get rid of it. Just, I don't know. It's the, it, if everybody's got a gun fighting back, you don't know who the baddie is. This exactly. is the problem. This is why they, these arguments that, oh, if everybody was armed, if teachers were armed, if there was more security guards armed, you just don't know who's the good guys and who are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. So, um, and yeah. that second bloke that they shot up in Dayton, Ohio, he was – they were lucky, actually, they managed to shoot him. I imagine they got him with a headshot because he was wearing body armour, wasn't he? Yeah, I didn't look at the specifics. Yeah. So we've reached the point, another shooting. I, I didn't even read it. it just, I just read the number and well, moved on, unfortunately. Well, because they're now at this, they're now at the stage now that they've had more mass shootings in the US in, the, in this year than we've had days. Mm. Now, a mass shooting is if someone is, is, if someone is shot – Shot more than four people, mm. you know, and <laughs> that's just ridiculous. Mm. You know, you've had some tweets from the Clintons, for example. Both of them have piped up and said that you know you've got to get rid of the guns. Yep, but that's been about it. Yeah, got a little chart that I've put up on the screen for those on the live stream. Uh, it's showing mass shootings per hundred million people, and it's also showing guns per hundred people. And the United States is way out on its own, except for Yemen as the next closest. So um, that's not a country you want to be compared with. And it really is a function of 
of how many guns they've got. Um, and there's just so many of them. So guns per 100 people, United States, somewhere around 90 mm. guns per 100 people. Now, that's basically because the big gun owners have hundreds of firearms each. Yes. But, you know, that is a really frightening statistic that you've got 90% of the population being potentially armed. Yeah. France and Canada, about 30 guns per 100 people. Really? France. So then when it comes to deaths, um, mass shootings per 100 million people, United States is at about 28 mass shootings per 100 million people. France is about 15. So... It's got about a third of the number of guns and about half the number of um, shooters, sort of proportion-wise. So things aren't good in France either. Just No. Yeah. Surprising amount in France. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, right. Um, and we've also had Scott, um, Victoria's... Uh, sister dying law, first mm, person, first person went, went away with it, yeah. Mm. And you know, it's just confirms everything I've said about it for a long time is that the, both the daughters said it was a beautiful thing and that their mother got exactly the death that she wanted and deserved, mm. you know. Mm. So, quoting the daughters here, um, let me see Kerry Robertson, 61, died at a nursing home in Bendigo after almost a decade living with cancer. Um, her daughters described her death as being beautiful and peaceful. Uh, it was a beautiful, positive experience. It was the empowered death that she wanted. So she uh, was the first one, and she visited her specialist the day the legislation came into effect on the 19th of June. And um, uh, so despite treatment, the cancer had metastasized to her bones, lungs and brain, spread to her liver. Uh, she decided to stop chemotherapy. The assisted dying process had taken 26 days to complete and went smoothly. Mm. There we go. Some 26 days from first making the move. Wow. Well, Why not? It, exactly. It, yeah. You know, 26 days, that's no problem at all. And that, that's when she was approved and she was given the um, drug, I understand mm. it. Yeah. And then she didn't take it straight away. She must have kept it locked up or something like that. Mm. So there we go. Um, Q&A the other night. Do you watch Q&A still? Oh, no, I do occasionally watch it. There was, you know, the Monday nights apparently was there was a great question that was asked by an older person that was on Centrelink's New Start mm-hmm. and that made the uh, Brisbane Times and the... Got a good beat up about that, but that was about it. So okay. I haven't well, seen the show or anything okay. like that in a long time. I can't bear to watch it, but I just yeah, I, know that. I just yeah. turned it on and I just saw who was on and I saw Erica Betts. Yes. Tim Costello. <laughs> Tim Costello, who's a fellow for the Centre for Public Christianity. So, yeah. so, okay, where's the really pro-secular person there? We've kicked off with Erica Betts and Tim Costello. Mm. Then we get an ALP senator, a business consultant and a master chef alumni. Like... <laughs> For goodness sake. <laughs> Pathetic. It was, yeah. Yeah. New start, Scott. Yeah. Uh, read an article in the Saturday paper because the government, of course, is just not 
going to wear an increase to Newstart, even though Barnaby Joyce thinks it's a good idea? Is that where we're heading? Well, Barnaby Joyce thinks it's a good idea, but he wants it to be higher in the rural areas, which, you know, because you've got to drive to job interviews out there. Right. Apparently so. So, yeah. but apparently, so he just wants it higher in the rural areas. Yeah. Right. Okay. Which is a load of shit, but anyway. Um, yep. You've also got, very surprisingly, John Howard speaking up and saying that uh, it should be higher. Mm. But I think ScoMo's come out. ScoMo's come out and the, said no. Yeah. 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 So, dear listener, Newstart, the general rate for a single person on Newstart is about $282 a week. By the, by the time you've paid rent somewhere, that doesn't leave much. It doesn't leave anything at all. You're in a share you know, house paying $200. Well, you are, yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, the whole point is that, you know, how the hell they expect people to live is beyond me. Mm. People over 60 get slightly more. Um, they get about 300 a week. So the typical thought of a new start sort of recipient is a young unemployed surfer Mm. spending their time at Byron Bay. But it's a misleading cliché. The average age of a person on Newstart is now 45. Mm. Eight years older than the average Australian. Exactly. Uh, Data from National Seniors Australia shows that the largest and fastest growing cohort of people receiving Newstart were those aged 55 to 64. And there was 173,000 of them, which was nearly a quarter of the total. So 55 to 64 accounted for a quarter of the new start people. Mm. And they're growing by 10,000 a year. And those people, understandably, are on new start for a long time and they average nearly four years on new start. Not yeah, surprising. And, you know, they end up on new start when they really should be aiming for the pension, shouldn't they, by their age? Yes. Know? So the, in this uh, link to this article I've got, there's this lady who was basically nearing retirement age when she would qualify for the pension. So um, uh, let me just find a bit on her. So a single pension is 463 a week. Mm. So 180 more than the single rate for Newstart. And she wouldn't have to go for all these incessant job interviews all the time. Exactly. So... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so a sad story of Judy who is just hanging out 18 months until she reaches the pension age of 66 when she'll get a massive boost to her income and she won't have to be going around as a 65-year-old knocking on doors trying to find work. Exactly, and she won't have to have any of the degrading, bloody demeaning job start nonsense that they put people through. You know, mm. you know I was listening to background briefing this afternoon on the ride home mm-hmm. and if ever there was a, a case for a universal basic income, it was the case of, I think, I forget what it's called, job ready or something like that where they basically they're diverting all the single mothers off to go and get job ready and that sort of shit. Mm-hmm. It costs $350 million in the federal budget, not a year but over the forward estimates. So forward estimates, five years, so 70 million bucks a year they're spending on it. And I thought to myself, if we just paid a universal basic income, we did away with all that shit, we wouldn't have to spend that sort of money mm. anyway. Mm. The thing about it, give these people money, they'll, they'll spend it. Like, exactly. That is the, that's the whole point. You're going to have... going to go through the economy. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, you, this is why you've got um, economists arguing for an increase in new start mm. because they understand it's going to end up benefiting the economy. Mm. The problem, Scott, is capitalism. Okay. 
have a listen. We, we've got we've we've received a voicemail from somebody <laughs> to do with capitalism. Have a listen to this. What's that, my love? What am I doing? Well, I'm going to write some love poetry. Well, of course I'll let you read it when I'm finished. <clears throat> oh, capitalism, some say you are a prison. But to them I do not listen. Some say you have put millions in the ground. But to that I say, hmm, they were mostly brown. <laughs> in you there is no gloom. As people consume and the economy booms, profits are maximised. And to no one's surprise, those of us on top get to keep the lot. Well, Landon, there's one for the ages. <laughs> Landon, you've got to get us in trouble. <laughs> People can see us laughing at your terrible jokes now as well. Oh, Landon. Yeah. Oh, dear. Mm. Right. Um, let me see. Um, Iran. Scott? Mm. The British can't get their tanker back. No, can't get the tanker back. And um, we've had a situation where the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has, has been... Been over here bending our ear about joining a uh, international force to patrol the Strait of Hormuz. Mm. Yep. And I'm not so sure that we should involve ourselves. I'm damn positive we shouldn't. Yeah. So, uh, Linda Reynolds, Defence Minister, said that the Morrison government is giving very serious consideration. Anyway, Mike Pompeo said, we hope Australia will partner with us on some of the most pressing foreign policy challenges of our time, like efforts to stabilise Syria and keep Afghanistan free of terror and confront the Islamic Republic of Iran's unprovoked attacks on international shipping in the Strait of Hormuz. Unprovoked, Scott? It's provoked by Donald Trump tearing up the nuclear treaty. Well, and, and then the British and provoked by the US telling the Brits yeah, to confiscate to a ship. F ship, yeah, yeah. Uh, there we go. US Defense Secretary Mark Esper said that the purpose of the proposed operation in the Gulf was to promote the principles of freedom of navigation and freedom of commerce, and to prevent any provocative actions that would lead to some misunderstanding or miscalculation that would lead to a conflict. So okay. it that, sounds like they're going to it sounds, police themselves. It sounds very reasonable that they want mm. to protect the commerce and that sort of stuff. Mm. But I don't think you can trust anything they say. Mm. You know, well, 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 Of course you can't. They're there just to bully the Iranians. So everything was fine until they confiscated a ship. Yeah. So they just stayed out of it. This is the whole point. Like the Iranians were still largely sticking to the deal, mm. despite the fact the Americans had put punishing um, sanctions on them again. Mm. But they were trying to stick to the deal and that sort of stuff. The Europeans were trying to keep the deal alive. Yep. And, excuse me, it wasn't until the uh, British picked up the uh, Iranian ship, probably because the Yanks leaned on them to do it. Yes, that we had a tanker problem. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. we've got then we had another British tanker that got pinched by the Iranians. Yep. It, I really fear that the whole thing will end up in a shooting war which will be started by accident. Mm. 
I read an article, I think it was from the John Menadue blog that I've got this linked from, which was basically saying that the UK Royal Navy can't do anything about it, the fact that they had, you know, ships, British ships taken, because they just don't have the naval fleet like they used to have. And uh, let me just see where it says here... Um, this comes on top of a major problem the Royal Navy had with its six new destroyers whose engines could not operate in the warm waters of the Gulf and had to be totally replaced at enormous cost. Really? Imagine you've made six frigates. Completely um, useless. Uh, six new destroyers and they couldn't operate in the Gulf because of warm water. Mm. Yeah. And just their ability... Because uh, the Iranians can just sit there and fire off missiles and they've got enough of them that it's a real concern. So mm. um, unlike Venezuela, they can fight back. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Right. Uh, you mentioned George Pell. Yes. And I'm going to put up on the screen for those watching on the live stream a piece of artwork. Mm. Yeah. It was really quite well done, wasn't it? Mm. You know, it was a... It was well for those that are listening and not watching their screens. This is a uh, picture of George Pell kneeling down in handcuffs, and behind him is a demon, mm. uh, Satan-like devil. Mm. And I thought it made a hell of a lot of sense, considering what we know about him and that sort of thing. That um, he's been convicted. He's been, you know, I thought it was a great piece of art. Mm. Unfortunately. He got painted over. Yes. And unfortunately, he put it on private property belonging to Wilson Car Park. Yeah. And so, of course, they just took the easy option and people complained it was offensive and they said, well, you didn't ask for permission and we're just going to paint over it because it is our private property. So, Yeah, I mean, which I've got no problem with them doing, you know, they should mm. be able to exercise their own private property rights. It's just a real pity that it happened, that's all. Mm. Scott, we're jumping all over the place here because I'm mindful uh, Hugh Harris is hopefully going to join us once he gets a ticket of leave from his wife. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm picking through different topics, some of which I'm leaving for Hugh yeah. as, as I go through them. Um, did you? Did I send you the one about Jessica Yanov? Uh, this is the case where women are having uh, legal action taken against them because they refuse to touch a penis and testicles. No, you didn't send so that. It's not ringing a bell. That no. one would be familiar. If, uh, yeah, if yeah. I'd read sorry, it. I, I didn't send you that one. No worries. Okay, this is an interesting one. So, you did say you've got a secret topic that you can't tell. Yeah, can't I'm going to do that one next if he hasn't turned up beforehand. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, Jessica Yanov is a man who now identifies as a woman. And there are these uh, beauty salons where they provide um, exfoliation services, you know, waxings, and they only perform them on women. So um, that's the only waxing that they want to perform is just for women. And uh, uh, Jessica turned up complete with testicles and penis and said, I want a wax job. And they said, well, we only do women, sorry. And Jessica said, I am a woman and has taken them to the Human Rights Commission and 
seemingly with some success. (laughs) (sighs) Clearly wrong. It's clearly wrong, yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, that, that is ridiculous, actually. You... Nah, that, that's just absolutely absurd. Mm. So that's an article in Spiked. So, right, Scott, uh, The Secret. Yes. Uh, it, well, now we're having a real, you know, walk through down memory lane, just you and I. <laughs> Go on, fist in the velvet glove. Just the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> And do you remember what one of my favourite things to do was uh, in the early days was to hit you with a quiz? You did, yes. Yeah, yeah. and you always did. You were very good on um, Bibles yeah. uh, stuff and you were very strong on Matthew. <laughs> Long-time long listeners will remember. So, Scott, um, here's a quiz which was done um, in the US to test the religious knowledge of different uh, Religious people, so okay. to see who knew the most about a variety of religions. Okay, so okay, uh, fifteen questions. I've already done it, <laughs> and I've got fourteen. So you, shit, I got lucky <laughs> in a couple. Let me just uh, grab my sheet of paper here. Hang on, no worries. Just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. Oh yeah, the Iron Fist is currently off getting his sheet of paper, which has presumably got the questions on there, and no doubt he'll be back to hit me up fairly shortly. Um, yeah. Other than that, uh, what else can I tell you? Not okay. A a lot. Oh, play along. Back. Play along at home and see how you go. If anyone out there genuinely gets fifteen out of fifteen, let us know. No worries. Right, Scott. There's nothing tricky. There's no sort of trick. To this, it's just straight out. Do you know it stuff? So don't look for any hidden sort of funny business. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, which Bible figure is most closely associated with leading the Exodus from Egypt? Moses. Correct. Which of the following is not one of the Ten Commandments? And oh, I'm going to move on the screen. So, which is not one of the Ten Commandments? Do not commit adultery. Keep the Sabbath holy. Do not steal. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Correct. Right. Um, next. In the Muslim tradition, believers have a religious obligation to make a pilgrimage to Islam's holiest city at least once during their lifetime if they are able. Which city is that? Mecca. Good. Three out of three, Scott. You're off to a <laughs> flying start. I did this with... Um, my wife and her sister uh, the other night, and uh, her sister got none of the first four questions right. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, let's just see, move on to the next one. Um, which Bible figure is most closely associated with willingness to sacrifice his son in obedience to God? Abraham. Yep. The people playing at home, they're not even getting a chance here, Scott. You're just flying <laughs> through them. You could have said Jacob, Cain, Levi or Abraham uh, were the choices, obviously. Uh, I will yeah. sit and wait for you to complete okay. the questions, okay. Neil. <laughs> Which of the following best describes Catholic teaching about the bread and wine used for communion? The bread and wine, A, actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ or B, are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ? A, the, the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ? Correct. Right. Uh, 
According to Catholic tradition, what is purgatory? A, an offering that Catholics make during the sacrament of confession. B, the purification process Catholics undertake during seasons of self-reflection such as Advent and Lent. C, whether souls of those who have died undergo purification before they enter heaven. D, whether souls of evildoers go for eternal punishment after they die. Um, it's the place where they go before being... Sorry, what was it? You, you where go the souls the, of those who have died undergo purification yes, before they enter heaven. That's Correct. It. Scott, you're going very well. <laughs> uh, question seven. Which religious tradition is most closely associated with yoga? It's either Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Zoroastrianism. This is yoga. Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Zoroastrianism. Okay, I'm saying Hindu because it's Correct. Not, I don't know what Zoroastrianism is. Good. Scott, you're going well. I'm starting to worry. <laughs> be really annoyed if you get 15. <laughs> Which religious tradition is most closely associated with Kabbalah? So Kabbalah is K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H. Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Zoroastrianism. Judaism. Very good, Scott. That's the one I got wrong. Really? Mm. <laughs> I went for Islam. Right. Um, which of the following is one of Buddhism's four noble truths? A, the truth that every living being has an immortal soul. B, the truth that Buddha was perfect and free from sin. C, the truth of monotheism. D, the truth of suffering. I'm going to say D, the truth of suffering. Scott, you're going to say well. <laughs> Dear listener... If you didn't know that one, um, oh, Freddie Mercury was Zoroastrian, according to Joe Bennett. Thank you, Joe. Okay, was he? Um, remember when we I did that interview with my friend Alex Bruce? Yes. Uh, yeah, the venerable Alex. Yes. Yeah. He sort of spoke about suffering and um, and how part of the whole thing was accepting it and yeah, um, that moving was on the, with it. Yeah. The thing that see my sister-in-law, she just lost her mum relatively recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they went over to Thailand for the funeral and blah, 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 blah. And it was really quite different the way they do the Buddhists. You know, they just right. sort of they just accept it and they cremate them and then they move on. Right. Know? Yeah. I'll quickly divert. Tony in the chat room says, did you see the article in the Sydney Morning Herald today about religious freedom meetings in New South Wales disguised as branch stacking membership drives for the LNP? Really? <laughs> Doesn't surprise me, Tony. <laughs> oh, God. So, okay, so they've said they're a religious freedom meeting, but then they've got them to sign up for the LMP by the sounds of it so they can branch stack. Mm. Wow. Doesn't surprise me. No. Uh, okay, so that was Buddhism. Next is, uh, look, this is difficult. Uh, in which religious tradition are men generally required to wear a turban like the one pictured below? Um, let me just see. Um, you're not going to see that. Um, I can't show that to people. Back to that, back to that. I can't. It's um, In which religious tradition are men generally required to wear a turban like the one pictured below in public and carry a ceremonial sword or small dagger? 
And the answers are Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism. Sikhism. Yeah. You don't even need to see the picture, Scott. Um, we're getting down to the wire. You're, you're, <laughs> Scott, you're going so well. On which day of the week does the Jewish Sabbath begin? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It begins on Friday. Good. I thought that might have got you as a trick one. Okay. Begins on Friday evening mm. and it goes until Saturday evening, doesn't it? The Shabbat starts. Shabbat starts at Friday night. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, which of the following best describes the Christian doctrine of the Trinity? There are three patriarchs: Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is one God in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The coming of Christ was foretold by three prophets: Elijah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. There are three gods. Father, mother, and son. No, the second one, God is one, but is divided into three people. That's Father, correct. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Correct. Scott, uh, that was question 12. Uh, according to the Bible, where did Jesus live during much of his childhood and young adulthood? Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Jericho. Born in Bethlehem, I don't know how long he stayed there because didn't he move into Egypt? Where did Jesus live during much of his childhood and young adulthood, according to the Bible? Okay, there was Bethlehem, Jericho. What was the Bethlehem, other Jerusalem, Nazareth, Jericho? Nazareth, correct. Oh, Scott, question fourteen. Which of these religious groups traditionally teaches that salvation comes through faith alone? Protestantism, Catholicism, both Protestantism and Catholicism, neither. Protestantism. Yes. <laughs> Scott, question 15 for a clean slate. <laughs> what is Ramadan? A Hindu festival of lights, a Jewish prayer for the dead, an Islamic holy month, a festival celebrating Buddha's birth? It's the Islamic holy month. Scott, congratulations. 15, 15 out of 15. Well done. Well done. <laughs> so here's the interesting part about all this. So in America, they asked a bunch of people the same questions, right? And so out of 15, the overall average, overall score average was 7.4. Really? Isn't that terrible? That is... I'm not belittling your performance, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, the average was 7.4. So... That shows just how insular the American world is, isn't it? That yeah. you only understand your religion and your religion's probably Protestantism. Yeah. And uh, the worst performers were um, black Protestants who averaged 4.9 and Mormons 6.8 really? were the worst. The best was the Jewish at 9.5 and the atheists at 9.3. There we go. Um Men, eight. Women averaged 6.8. And older people did much better than younger people. Obviously, college graduates averaged 9.5. Pretty poor. Yeah. Uh, high school or less averaged 5.7. Um, blacks averaged 5.4. Hispanics, 6.1. And whites, 8.1. Interesting. <laughs> 
so extremely poor knowledge of other religions. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. Okay. Oh, um, there we go. 12th man, 15 out of 15 as well. Good <laughs> <laughs> on you, Paul. I don't think he's so sick. He's been coming away here on the, on the chat room. And Tony says about those meetings, uh, they would sign up at the end of the meeting, apparently. So, and Tony um, got 15 too. Well, I'm feeling bad. With I was pr- quite proud of my 14. The Kabbalah bit I didn't get. What, what's Kabbalah in Judaism? Kabbalah, I don't know. I only right, remember just, because there was an episode of Absolutely Fabulous when the um, – You answered a religion question based on an episode in Absolutely Fabulous. fabulous. That's yes. classic. <laughs> well, there was this thing when um, Mo, when Bo Chrysalis was uh, arriving with her husband – and she said, why are you doing this? She says, oh, the Kabbalah groups, they have all the great parties. There's a, all the, a couple of celebrities and, and a couple of Jews. So, right. so I assumed it was something to do with Judaism. Right, there you mm. go. So I got thrown. I just It sounded sort of Arabic to yeah. me, yeah. Like the Kabbalah sort of thing I was looking for. So. Mm. Uh, right, okay. Um, we're rattling through topics. Uh, national... We um, are because Paul's not here to hold us up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he will be arriving soon, I think. Right. Private health insurance, we've been banging on a bit about uh, it of recent times, Scott. And warning. I hate paying my fucking insurance. Right. <laughs> and warning the millennials. Yeah. The, uh, the private health insurance group NIB has got a boss called Mark Fitzgibbon. Yeah, what he said was deplorable, wasn't it? He called on the government to scrap Medicare and institute compulsory private coverage for all Australians. So he ended up like the United States. Mm. Um, he, did. he called on a model that uh, would adopt the model in the United States. He said health insurers, poor things, faced a growing crisis due to skyrocketing costs and he described the Medicare system as, quote, a government monopoly. <laughs> he doesn't understand how... <laughs> you know, he's, he's got, these guys have got no shame. They've got absolutely no uh, shame. A private health insurer it's, looking at Medicare and going, oh, that's not fair, that's a government monopoly. Meanwhile, you're running a private business based on government subsidies. Yeah. He says here, quote, you hadn't read this before? I read, read it, it when you when okay. sent it to me, yeah. Quote, the sensible, this is from this guy, the sensible policy approach would be to make private health insurance compulsory for all Australians with taxation devoted to subsidising the premiums for those who would otherwise be left behind. That is, high income earners would be at the end of the scale paying the entire premium, while at the other, those with low income would be fully subsidised. Yeah, right. Um, this comes on the back of a warning from the Grattan Institute that health insurance industry is in a death spiral. Young people can't afford it and they're not joining up and the old baby boomers are, um, are the ones who are in it and it's just getting too expensive, not enough people paying for it. So watch out, millennials. This government, this this government, government will, will try and do something like this, yeah. It's they'll, they'll bump it up, they'll help them out. Exactly, they will. And, you know, they're going to end up somehow making it compulsory for you. Mm. It's bloody crooked, but I honestly believe that that's where it's going to end up. And <laughs> I hate private health insurance. <laughs> I absolutely loathe paying the insurance premium once a month. Mm. And I would much rather 
have a double the Medicare levy so that we had a good functioning national health service that if you break your wrist, you go into a government hospital and it gets help, you get fixed up. Yep. Let me just grab something here. My mother has a kidney problem. Mm. So she's at the point where if things aren't improving, she could be on some sort of dialysis. Yeah. So there's medication that you can get which uh, helps your body with converting iron into hemoglobin and other things. So it's like a hormone that mm. you need. It's apparently the sort of stuff that, um, that Lance Armstrong used when he was cheating in the... Yeah. So she's on this. It's, um, it's uh, a, a pen, sort of like an EpiPen. Yeah. You stick in your leg once a week. Yeah. And so I collected her supply for her and she was looking at the box and she's talking about the price. And I said, what are you talking about? It can't be that. So she paid $6.50 for it. And the price of the pen that she's using every week, uh, it says here full cost on the box, Eight hundred and ninety-eight dollars fifty-five cents. Yeah. Unbelievable, and we get it for six dollars fifty. Yeah, Americans just would not believe it. No, they wouldn't. And this is the. That's why the pharmaceutical benefits scheme was a beautiful set of government intervention in mm. our lives, mm. because when you get crook, and I get really pissed off when I hear people complaining about the price of antibiotics. Mm. Antibiotics are a fraction of what they would cost. Yeah. And I honestly believe that what they ought to do is they ought to have the price, less government subsidy, your price. Mm. I honestly believe that's what should happen. I, I walked out of the chemist with six of these. Exactly. And I went, I've got $5,000 worth of stuff exactly. in my hand. Yeah. I've, I've, never, I've not, never more easily held $5,000 worth of something. Like, mm. It would have been a bigger pile if it was pure cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> so, yeah, incredible. It is incredible. And th th this is the whole point. Like anyone that sits there and says the private sector can do things better, they can't in health. Mm. You know, they honestly can't. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of money, but I guess if she was on a dialysis machine and the people involved in that. It would be even that, a hell of a lot more money. Even more. So yeah. it makes sense to provide this now. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, remember when um, I talked about Facebook and I said, young people aren't watching Facebook. Mm. And one of our uh, keen listeners is Watley. Yeah. And he sent us a comment. He said, G'day, mates. Uh, been a good episodes. I need to get onto the streaming thing so I can watch. Fist, you have made the craziest comment of the year that young people don't use Facebook. Maybe yours don't, but the ones I know are still glued. Um, and he goes on. So anyway... I sent Watley, um, I, I quickly Googled, <laughs> found the article that supported my argument <laughs> and sent it to him. And um, it said that uh, teenagers have abandoned Facebook in favour of other social media platforms, according to a study from Pew Research. Again, America. Mm. Um, just 51% of US individuals aged 13 to 17, so teenagers... Only 51% are using Facebook. Previously, it was 71% um, when they did the study four years ago. And um, they said that it's noticeably lower 
than those who are using YouTube, 85%, Instagram, 72%, or Snapchat, 69%. The interesting thing is, um, Hugh's arrived. We can tell this car's... Um, Get him. Yeah, so Scott will go get him, and I'll just talk about uh, Facebook. So uh, the use of Facebook was markedly higher among lower-income teens. So with 70% of those living in low-income households of less than 30,000 would use Facebook, whereas in high-income, over 75,000, only 36%. So 70% versus 36% using Facebook just depending on whether it was a high income or a low income. So that's interesting. So I made the comment to Watley that his, uh, his must be hanging around a lot of uh, working class people. And speaking of working class, Hugh Harris has arrived. <laughs> Hugh's got a bottle. We need to get a glass from the kitchen. And you're going to sit there, Hugh. Yep. <laughs> and, yep, put those on. And we've... Good to see you, Hugh. Good to see you. Yep. Pull that microphone up nice and close to you. Yeah, that's it. And I'm going to put uh, a different screen on here. Let's just see. Oh, my gosh. This is so, this so. is like a TV studio. Yeah. It's amazing. It is. Well, Hugh, we can't get onto TV shows, so I figured we'd better create our own. You should be on one. So there it's we go. Ridiculous. <laughs> why, why go on to Q&A? I don't know that I want to be on with the likes of Erica Betts and, um, and uh, who was the other one? The, Centre for Public Christianity guy. Scott, I just said his name. Tim Costello. Tim Costello oh. and a MasterChef alumni. Like, I didn't I'm, watch that episode. Yeah. I, I don't mind Tim Costello so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, please. So, all right. Um, pull that microphone down and closer. Yeah. How's right. That? That's good. How's that? Yeah, that's good. And you know what? I'm just going to try and zoom in on you a bit if I can. You I'll have just, got uh, good glasses, Trevor. Appreciate this. If I can... I'm, you, uh, thank you. It's nice to nice to um, yep. visit the upper classes. Yeah. Well, you appreciate your wine. It's in a nice big glass. <laughs> the bouquet will be held in there and yeah. allowed to. That's know. nice. A I lot remember, of you know, remember the good old days. As you know, a lot of wine taste comes from the aroma. The, the aroma. Yeah. yeah. So you need that. Yep. Uh, Hugh, I'm going to try and um, I'm just going to try and zoom in on you because it's just going to be worthwhile for people if I can. <laughs> So, hang on a second. Is it terribly vain to take my glasses so, off? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me see. So come up. Uh, okay. Bear with me one second, dear listener. Um, are, we live, part, are we live on? Yeah, yeah. Probably this okay. part will be cut out for the... Um, for the uh, podcast. Yeah. For the podcast. That's good. Yeah. yeah. This, this, this is pretty bad. Right yeah. So... Uh, Apologies to anyone watching this yeah. currently. You know what? Um, <laughs> And and pull it arm down and the and tilt that up. So pull that yeah that yeah like that that way. All right. Yeah. Now, right up to it. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Now there we can good. see you. Beautiful. That's good. good. Thank you. Click OK on that. And um, good. You're good to go. I think. Kind of feel a bit like a hamster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> a hamster. Yeah. You know, like in a cage. You know. Okay. Yep. Right. Have you been here? Good. Have you been? I've been good. I uh, saw on the uh, John Dixon Facebook page. Oh yes. <laughs> Why do you do it to yourself? I don't know. I I, I, uh, I don't know. I think it is something with the with people who have become attracted to atheism, or perhaps it's the new atheism movement, which was sort of how I first became involved in this sort of thing. That um, I think you've got to be a person who likes having a bit of an argument. Yeah. 
and I like having it a bit, a bit of an argument. And I like John Dixon's Facebook thing because mm-hmm. he's a good sport, mm-hmm. and because it's also a bit of sport to. Um, I find it. I find it entertaining to look at his arguments mm. and argue against them and and then see sometimes he sometimes has a good point. Yes. But so, most of the time he runs out of steam and and quickly resorts to obf- obfuscation and to mm. sort of ad hominems. Mm. So, yes. on the John Dixon Facebook page, you were talking about tax, the taxation of charities, the taxation of Yes. Of uh, not-for-profits and, of course, churches. Yes. And so I suggested that we discuss this because mm. this was one of the occasions where I think he has – I think he and some of the other people on his um, – who are his supporters yes. actually had a pretty good point. Yes. Okay. And so I've been member of the Rationalist Society for quite some time. I've written articles in the, in the media about that we should tax – religion and I think we should tax it on the basis of the advancement of religion is not actually a taxable purpose. Mm. I don't think that's it's a charitable it's it's set up as a charitable purpose. Yes, as yeah. a charity it's not a genuinely charitable purpose because it's new converts to Scientology or the exclusive brethren or or the mainstream sects of Christianity. I don't think that's doing anything that's demonstrably beneficial towards society, whereas I do believe, however, that helping people in need, soup kitchens and um, services, Mm. hospitals, all of that sort of stuff, those things are a genuine charitable purpose. Mm. So my argument was that, well, we should remove remove the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose. Yes. And um, the point point is made by the people on his page and Mm. by him as well is that You've got this other category of not-for-profits who also don't pay tax. Correct. And who are really conducting cultural activities. Scouts. Yes. Sporting sporting groups. And just things of interest to subgroups of our community that are of no interest to other groups in our community. Yes. And, okay, they're not a charity, but under the taxation framework, they get most of the tax benefits that charities get anyway. So their argument was that um, if you want to remove the taxation benefits that churches receive, shouldn't you also be removing them for these other cultural, sporting, special interest groups? Yes. Absolutely we should. And I think that is a persuasive argument. Yes. So I'd be interested... To hear your comments, you've probably read what my comments mm. were. As um, I, I didn't know you'd actually come to that view. We're reading the comments. I didn't know. I didn't see you actually concede that. I, I never conceded anything. Oh, right. <laughs> but, Why not? Why not? <laughs> I think. Well, my problem with. Well, I mean, because well, I, 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 I thought I, I, I thought you because... didn't concede, and I thought, great, Hugh seems to be sticking to his line. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with him on something. <laughs> now you've come in, and we're bloody well agreeing again, Hugh, well, Hugh Harris. No, I think I think on balance, I do I do stand by the arguments I made there, but I do think it's a case where they're making that comparison, and it is a good point. But my point was, I don't think you can really compare the Scouts with the Roman Catholic Church. And the way the Roman Catholic Church hoards its assets, has billions of dollars in gold bullion. Um, maybe you can compare the Scouts with the New Life Church of, uh, or, or, or with um, 
Israel Falau's church. You know, there's lots of just little tiny churches around that would be smaller in resources and numbers than these scout groups, for example. There's a lot of small church well, groups. Well, that's true. And yeah. would, how would you compare it to, say, the Rationalist Society of Australia, which I'm a part of? Mm. And we're tax-free. Mm. Mm. Um, and so I've always wondered when someone is going to present that argument back to me. Mm. And, and on that, that Facebook thing, it was presented back to me. Yes. And I think that's quite a persuasive argument. Mm. So what do you guys think of that? I think we should tax all not-for-profits as if they were companies, regardless of whether you're a sporting club, a rationalist society, a humanist society or anything else. I think we should all be paying tax. The whole country should be paying tax. Okay. Churches as well. All right. I'm willing to entertain that thought. Is that what you think too, Trevor? I think this should be a size threshold, really, and also to make it palatable because... Mm. If you actually uh, let me see the size of did you look up what the size of charities and what the average size is or do you aware of the statistics or shall I just tell you tell me okay <laughs> save time <laughs> right almost two thirds of Australia's registered charities that's sixty three percent are classified as small with annual revenue of two hundred fifty thousand or less um, and what we've got. Um, only a minority of charities are medium, so 17% have revenue between 250000 and $1 19% have annual revenue of a million dollars or more. So, 19%. Yeah. So I'm happy with a million-dollar threshold to say if you've got revenue of a million dollars, I don't care what organisation you are, you might be uh, Penrith Leagues Club or you might be a successful church, mm. then you have reached the point where you're conducting a business and you've gone beyond the scout hall. I think a lot of charities are conducting a business. When I was mm. listening to these comments, I had a look in, uh, I looked at a couple of secular charities such as, say, Oxfam. And a lot of the criticism of Oxfam has been that it's grown to a certain extent. It started in the UK. It had a lot of bookshops. And then it was criticised for being an organisation that pretended it was like Mother Teresa or the the actual reputation of Mother Teresa, not the actual, and, um, and was actually only geared towards its expansion and its and the benefit of itself and was paying its its executives quite high salaries, that mm. sort of thing. And I think the same thing happens with a lot of charities particularly religious ones, and so I tend to think the idea of a threshold is a really good idea. I think that would really work, and I think mm. that's where there's a distinction between scouts groups that uh, have one function, they have their properties that they use for that function, and let's I, I don't imagine, though I might be wrong, but I don't imagine the scouts has a whole lot of investment properties. I don't imagine that they own their scouts hall and then they own all the houses in the street. Whereas my experience with certain churches is that they have their religious building and then you find out they've actually bought all the houses surrounding that in case they needed to expand. Mm -hmm. And they're just renting them out. They're making a profit, paying no tax. Okay. And okay, well, there's a similar problem that arises. This is the Jeff Bezos problem okay. and the Clive Palmer problem is that these guys, like Jeff, let's, Jeff Bezos, for example, his actual income is probably quite mm -hmm. small. So 
he only needs to draw down a couple hundred thousand a year to, in the case of Clive Farmer, buy some hamburgers. Mm. And, um, and they've got a wealth accumulation happening in the capital sense. So someone like the Catholic Church, if you look at their income, it's potentially quite small in comparison to their assets yes. when you look at the wealth of them. So you, if you really want to catch these people, you need to start assessing their assets, perhaps looking at an assets test and saying, well, if you own this much wealth, um, you need to you know, pay some tax. You need to. Mm. The thing that's noticeable about those debates on Facebook, on John Dixon's Facebook page, is that the comments about the massive wealth of the Catholic Church, mm. how we it, – it's half of the church in Australia – uh, it's half of the – we subsidise it to the tune of $16 billion a year, $16 billion. Unbelievable. Yep. And – Where's that figure come from? What's that? It's from uh, a couple of media articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Age – there was a couple of articles in The Age um, investigating the amount of properties the Catholic Church owns right. nationally. Mm-hmm. And there was also a Kelso Lawyers uh, article about um, that, the sh- that the church should be taxed. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church, the, the vast amount of assets that it has, it does hundred $100 billion in turnover in the United States alone. Mm. And so it seems it seems like a, a no-brainer that, yep. that some sort of all of the money that goes from Australia goes to the Vatican. Mm. When mm. you deal with the Catholic Church in Australia and they need to spend more than a small sum of money, more than a couple of hundred thousand, they need to get approval from the Vatican to spend it. So it seems it seems undefendable to even the even those who are the most staunch defenders of the church mm. that well, the, the, mm. the Catholic Church needs our subsidies. It's the most it's the wealthiest private institution in the world. Yeah. Okay. By the Economist. Okay. The can Economist play, has come up with that. Can I play devil's advocate? Go for it. Okay. So I looked at the definition of a not for profit in the and the sort of uh, legislation and stuff. And this, um, when we hear not-for-profit, we sort of think the idea is that they don't make profit. They're very yes. profitable organisations. But that's not what not-for-profit is. No, they not, do make not a Not-for-profit means that not-for-profit of individual members. Mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't mean doesn't make a profit. It just means does not distribute the profit. It doesn't to, make distributions. Yes. It's not-for-profit of, of met specific members. So... I'll just read a little bit here. Generally, a not-for-profit is an organisation that does not operate for profit, personal gain or other benefit of particular people, for example, its members or the people who run it. A not-for-profit can make a profit, but any profit must be used for its purposes. It can keep profits as long as there is a genuine reason for this, and it is to do with its purpose. For example, a good reason to keep profits may be to save up for starting a new project, building new infrastructure, or accumulating a reserve so it continues to be sustainable. If an organisation continues to hold on to significant profits indefinitely without using them for its charitable purpose, this may suggest the organisation is not working solely towards its stated charitable purpose. So the Catholic Church could say, sure, we've got lots of assets, but we've got an enormous welfare system that we've got here. So we need these assets to secure our future. They're they're there as our... um, safety net in case government funding disappears or carry us over during bad times and 
So, yes, we own a lot of assets, but we do so much that we need them. Oh, but they but they are such a good institution, according to their supporters, that uh, that the... Hospitals, schools... All of these um, things unemployment, would... Unemployment. They, uh, would, fail to, they would somehow fail to exist in the minds of many people if it wasn't for the Catholic mm. Church. Mm. And so the price that you pay to go into the Vatican to see all of the priceless artwork that mm. they've hoarded over thousands of years <laughs> is, is going to do good because I think for... I think the difference between us and the people who would support um, the Catholic Church, such as the people on John Dixon's Facebook page, is that they think it's a genuinely good thing and an honourable purpose for the religion, whether it's Anglican or Catholic or whatever it is, it's a genuinely good thing for that religion to expand and gain converts. Mm. So they think it's quite acceptable. In the same way that the scout groups thinks it's a good thing to get more scouts. Mm, yes. I'm not sure so, if that example's I, No, but we've already agreed that these are just special interest groups. That, you know, if you're not in the special interest group, it's of no um, use or benefit to you, but you accept that different people have different interests. So True. Scott, so, what do you think of that? Because I, I wanted you to expand on your earlier point. Well, I think that scouts are completely different to a church. You know, they are well, completely, but then in what way? Well, they I, are I, very they're different not as, because they're, they're not as evangelical for a start. Exactly. They're not desperate to get new members of scouts. Some, some groups aren't. Jews are not. Jews are not desperate to get members. No. They, I'm, in fact, make it very difficult. I, I don't have any problem with the so, Jewish community at all. Okay, so tax them all except the Jews. No, I think they should tax because they're not as. I think they should. I think they should tax the synagogues too. I do not understand why you've got this whole exemption for not-for-profits written into laws. Not-for-profits and charities should pay tax. I honestly believe that because I've worked for a not-for-profit before. And I thought to myself at the end of it all, I thought this is only a brief contract. I was there for six weeks or something like that. I walked out of the place and I thought to myself, this has just been set up by these doctors to reduce the amount of income tax they have to pay. Right. You know. Yep. And Was that Medicine Sans Frontiers? No, it wasn't okay. Medicine Sans Frontiers. It was... Um, there, there are different schemes, of course, that perhaps are used inappropriately. Or, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just but, but, do not understand. But, but when you say there's a big difference between scouts and and small church groups, let's ignore Catholics for a moment and just like John Dixon. Uh, well, he's Anglican, isn't he? I mean, there's, yes. there's a lot of smaller church groups around. Yes, so, that's right. And and I think specifically of like the New Life Church of that guy that we dealt with, Chris Lambie down the Gold Coast. He had you know he had less members than we've got. Scott, we could. <laughs> I think of this. Uh, as a little sort of parish group we've got here. <laughs> so we say to people, how many people listen? I go, oh, 350, 400. And then you go, you know, if I was a parish priest and 350 were rocking up every week, you'd call it a success. Yeah, so it's great. a little bit unbelievable. Yeah, we've got an indoctrination process going on. Scott's almost a socialist, and I've got a long way to go with you. But <laughs> you've got a long way. <laughs> No, and I you've got to figure out a way to get 10% of everyone's income out of those 350 people. You'd be doing so well. I'm aiming low for a dollar a show. <laughs> just to remind you, by the way, because we'll just, well, that's a good point. I'll just, because uh, um, David Attenborough introduced us, and I'll just play a little bit of advice from David Attenborough here. Here we go. 
scientists have recently discovered that expat tribe members, listening to their musings from both far and wide, have been contributing to the group's well-being and habitat infrastructure through something called Patreon. Some for as little as one dollar a podcast. It really is making a difference, and it's been observed to enrich the tribe as a whole with contributing members experiencing measured dopamine spikes when new episodes are released, and even intermittent bouts of persistent smiling while listening. Ah, there seems to be movement again. If we listen carefully, we may be able to make out the discussion once more. Thanks for reminding me to put in a little plug there. <laughs> this, really, this, really, this really is like a church group now. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Uh, Tony in the uh, chat room says, Scouts do not benefit the greater community outside their own membership. That's correct. That's the whole point, Tony. They're very similar to religious groups. Yes. And we're, for the most part, in the atheist community, happy for Scouts to be tax-free. So yes. really, if we're to well, hold... I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if we're to be consistent, and we're all about consistent in this rational sort of sphere. Yes. Um, yeah, certainly. So I think we can... Well... Can I put in another yeah, comment before yeah. we conclude on that? Yeah. I think I accept the point that there's a similarity there, but mm. I think all, all not-for-profits have to have full financial disclosure and we need to know what they're doing with their money. Mm. And I think if we did that... My suspicion is, and I might be a bit of a sceptic, that you'll find a lot of the religious organisations are not using that money to the best Particularly like benefit the, of their yeah. members and also the benefit of society generally. The, and you're going to find that also with a lot of other charities as well that are non-religious. It would be a good po starting point because people like the Mormons would be exposed because yes. they, according to our Mormon friend and things we read, do very little in terms of charity work and accumulate a lot of money. So yes. that would be a good example of, yeah. the exclusive you know, if the books show what are you actually doing with all of this money and you, what only a fraction of 1% is actually spent on anything resembling general welfare, well, then you can get community attitudes to change. Yeah, that's mm. right. I think also for a number of secular charities, a number of our charities get bequests from people. Mm. And then there's a natural conservatism as what do you do with that money? Mm. And I think it needs to be shown that you are actively advancing your charitable purpose by spending that money and using that money appropriately. And that's why financial reporting would be essential for all charities, mm. which they've instituted more of, but I think it needs to be fully transparent and full public disclosure of what those funds are and what they're used for, mm. which has been fought uh, tooth and nail by their religious organisations. Mm. So John Dixon on his page said, well, we have to show our financials and here's a link to our financials. But... Um, it's not full disclosure. Mm. They just have to do a financial report yep. and they, the tax office says that most charities don't provide full. Yeah. Even even though they're required to, they don't require it. They yeah. don't send as much information as they it, should. It's certainly impossible to know what the uh, land holdings are of religious groups, for example. Mm. Like you'd want a financial report that listed assets and liabilities. There's and an age article that couldn't mm. establish... And was fought tooth and nail by the religious organisations to say yeah. what property they actually owned. Yes. And they ended up discovering that they they had a 
enormous property portfolios. Yes. Which were tax exempt. And it came about through some strange thing. Was it like the ambulance levy or something like that, which was a sideways way of working out what they owned yes. from memory? Some obscure something like that. Like yeah. That. Hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that was it. You want to agree more or less with the concept that at least small, well, We've still got Venezuela. Okay. You and I would agree then that small churches and small community groups just shouldn't pay a tax and there should be some threshold. Absolutely. And perhaps it needs to be an asset-based thing, maybe. I'd say so, yeah. Whereas Scott is of the view he wants to tax the local scout hall uh, straight away. Absolutely. If it's made a profit. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I have it's a got, bit of a problem mm. of RSLs being tax exempt when they make millions of dollars out of poker machines. Absolutely. Yeah. They make millions. Mm. The, and then well, then the, the threshold would hopefully catch them. Yeah, yeah. the threshold yeah. would catch them, but I just don't think you want to create any sort of – because then you're going to have someone that's you – know, you, can, you can see it now, can't you, that you're going to have this current affair article that's going to report that – you know, if they'd made one dollar less, they wouldn't be paying any income tax. But now they've got to pay income tax. Right. You know, they're, they're, whereas I just think if you just have no threshold whatsoever, then you just got to pay income tax. I think Tony in the chat room is on your side, so he was saying, "Thank you very much, Tony." Scouts don't benefit the community, so he wants them to pay tax, <laughs> just like you. Maybe you should be the Iron Fist. Yeah, I find, <laughs> increasingly, that I'm is, finding that I'm pretty not, Iron Fist, and I, yeah. I have a bit of sympathy for that view. Yeah, so I could be convinced. Yeah. <laughs> So it's interesting. I'm like you, you know, years ago, I would have just been a blanket tax them. But yeah. I, yes, I accept what they're saying there. So, oh, good. Okay. Well, not good. I was hoping yeah. we'd disagree. But yeah. yeah. Uh, we might disagree just quickly on Israel Folau. Yes, I'm sure we disagree on this. Mm. So you, uh, on Israel, before we get on to his cousin, yes. uh, you don't think Israel should have been sacked. No, I think it's outrageous. Mm. I think the example of the lady who was sacked, you would recall, from Cricket Australia. She promoted um, decriminalisation of abortion on her Facebook page. Mm. She was sacked for that. Mm. I thought that was outrageous. Mm. Israel Folau. She did more than just that, though. She abused the government um, quite vehemently for their what she saw shortcomings. So she she was quite critical of certain members of the government. Of the Australian government? No, the Tasmanian government. Really? Yeah. Is, well, okay. So, I and her think, job I think was in a Syrian totalitarian yeah. uh, mm. country, mm. like imagine if someone criticised Vladimir Putin mm-hmm. and then was sacked from their job, mm. I'd probably think that was wrong. Her job, though, was to smooze with the government and <laughs> to liaise with them as a public relations person. So her specific so, – so this is with Falau is we're going to get into the area of exactly what is her job. Her yes. job, though, was PR person for Tasmanian cricket. So do you to, think she was, to liaise, was acceptable she was sacked? To liaise with the government and to ingratiate herself with government leaders to get favours for cricket for Tasmanian cricket. That was her job. Okay. Well, I might have a gap in what I know yeah. there. But all I know is that she was supported abortion, got yeah. the sack. But yeah, if but, she directly criticised yes. the government yes. and, and that was of part it. of her job, then yeah. there's a bit of a blurry line there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So for Lau, you say that – well, here's my view yeah. – is that uh, for Lau's job was not just to catch and kick <clears throat> footballs and score tries. So I say that it's said to Falau – Israel, have we got a deal for you? 
we need you to catch and kick footballs. We need you to attend functions, uh, be photographed, uh, meet with sponsors, uh, a range of ancillary off-the-field jobs that you need to be available for throughout the year. Be there on time, do this stuff. Yes. Um, we want to pay you a lot of money. See that sponsors over there with the checkbooks all open and see that big crowd of people over there in the stands willing to pay $150 a ticket and $15 for a mid-strength beer. They, if they pay us a lot of money, we can pay you a lot of money. But if they don't pay us a lot of money, we can't pay you a lot of money. Yeah. So if you want to play just football and you don't want a lot of money and you don't want the strings that are going to be attached to this, you can play park rugby. But if you like the idea of a lot of money, then we need to keep those people happy. And your role in that is to be an ambassador and a role model. Do you think you can do it? In which case, here's a bundle of money. All right. And he couldn't do it. So I see his job description as different to you. And I accept that somebody like you might have a totally different view of what his job was. And this is the, the hard part of the right. Israel Folau one is how you describe how his job. How you describe it. Yeah. Can I come back to yeah, that? Yeah. But first, can I ask Scott, do you agree with Trevor or me on this one? Which I, one? I agree with Trevor on that. You're on with Trevor on this no, one. I, I think honestly, I've got an unusual point of view here. Okay, well, good. No, no I honestly <laughs> believe that Israel Folau was sacked because he didn't keep in, um, in good with his contract. His contract said that you're not to engage in social media and that sort of shit. He did that and he got in trouble for it. So, yeah. yeah, okay, fair enough. I guess I, I see the point that there's another point of view to my argument and mostly that point of view is held by people that I otherwise agree with. However, when you present that argument that you just did, which is a cogent argument. Thank you. But, <laughs> but, but. Let's face it, Israel Folau was not paid a million dollars a year because of his PR skills, his intelligence, his debating skills, his all of that. He was paid that much money because that's what he was worth because he's the best rugby player in Australia. Before you interrupt, that's why anyone else who was as good as rugby would have got the same money. He didn't earn that job Can I please from his – no, please. you can't. You got a long. You got a long statement. Okay. I might okay. keep going. <laughs> you made a long statement, and I wanted to interrupt several times. He's not paid that much because of his PR skills. He's paid that because he's the best rugby player. All he has done is stated his religious views as unusual, stupid, bigoted as they are, and I think most people on our side of the political fence, and I say that from a progressive and secular point of view are appalled by his views and therefore we come down against him. But I think if you found that this, if this person was an atheist in the same position or was an extremely progressive person, LGBTI, or saying an equally controversial point of view, which is something that's unverifiable either way, and that person got the sack, we would come down right on the side of that person that got the sack and said, no, they shouldn't be sacked for just stating their opinion. I don't think his opinions on religion have anything to do with his ability to play rugby or promote the sport. I don't think a single person would have been turned away from rugby. I think it was sort of a media frenzy around someone making some controversial comments that led to the whole Rugby Australia having to put this in place. It was also commercial reality with the Qantas chief being a very pro-LGBTI guy 
threatening to withdraw sponsorship. So Rugby Australia was put in the position of having to say to Israel Folau, no, you can't say these sort of unpopular views, but I don't think in your job you should have to toe a line on your metaphysical views about life. I don't want to be in a job where I can't say what my views are and I realise that my views in particular in my job, if I'm working in the uh, retirement sector, like as you guys know, I'm an architect, if I'm working in the retirement sector or working in schools, I don't want to get the sack if I state my views on Facebook. I can see the same thing that happened to Israel Folau easily happened to me for, st- for stating views which I think are equally unverifiable, but I think my views are much more legitimate than his views are. Okay. Uh, I would say that 99% of jobs, it doesn't matter what your views are and you shouldn't be sacked for them. So uh, for, for, for 99% of jobs, he could get away with what he did and he shouldn't yeah. be sacked. Sure. But there are certain jobs that by their very nature, um, your, your conduct or comments can make you yourself ineligible for that job. But what about, so, what about this? Religion has historically had such a huge mm. importance in our lives that almost every job in the private sector has some intersection with religion. My job has a fairly large intersection with it because a lot of our clients provide retirement care, look after schools, whatever. So I might criticise religion on Facebook. One of my clients might get upset with that and put pressure on my boss to sack me because I've said something against Mm. the Catholic Church or the Uniting Church, Mm. we might be doing a job for the Catholic Church. Mm. In your view, is it acceptable that I get the sack? No, because I see the purpose of your job to be providing architectural consulting services. Yeah, but the purpose of my job is to be almost a PR relationship for my company as well. um, Oh, uh, it, come down, it comes down to the nature of the job. And some jobs, I say, uh, your comments or your conduct can disqualify you. Like, I'm disqualified from being the PR person for the Catholic Church because I do this podcast every week. True. You know, if that, I was, that's an inherent requirement, though. That's directly... It, okay, so it, there's a line there somewhere, yeah, though. And, and I'm, so saying that that for, I'm saying that Falau is in the PR line. Like, his... His, uh, his job has a lot more PR in it than what you're saying. And that's a matter of factual sort of things to be found out. So I can True, accept I might be wrong, but if you... So can uh, I. And, so, and, and this woman from Cricket yeah. Australia, yeah. was she the PR person she for... Was the PR yeah, person she for was the PR person for Tasmanian Cricket. See, that's the whole okay. point. Yeah. Well, I can yeah. see that's a... Yeah. And, and yeah. she made herself unable to do her job anymore. And if you can, you can take a view of Falau that part of his job was keeping sponsors happy and he made himself ineligible and he knew he would. But what he did was stated his metaphysical beliefs on mm. Facebook outside of his job. Should yes. Trevor Bell, oh, who's employed as a lawyer mm. for a leading mm. law firm in Australia, mm. be sacked for stating his uh, metaphysical views Just on Facebook... Just, just the same, if you were a partner in a law firm, which mm, I know you've been before, mm, mm. you do that, you're responsible for PR firm as much as any PR manager. What, what? You, should, you, sh- you should support the right of someone to state, everyone should be allowed to state their beliefs what? because free speech, if we 
allow it to be censored mm. by commercial interests and by employers demanding that we tow the employer's line, we're not going to have a proper debate anymore. Mm. It's going to be ridiculous. But, but what you're suggesting is what you do in your private life shouldn't affect your job. Not 100%, no, but you, but should, be able to, you the, should be able to state your opinions. Yep. You should be able to work for, say, a private school or an independent religious school. Mm. You should also then be able mm. to say on Facebook that you're in a same-sex relationship. You should be able to come out and, and, as and, and, what you're – you should mm. be able to come out as an LGBTI mm. person mm. or you should be able to state your political views, as we all do on Facebook – and you shouldn't be sacked for it. You should be able to say your views and commercial organisations just have to wear it, that people in their private lives don't agree with everything. Rugby Australia, who cares what Israel Folau really believes about religion? It has no effect on Rugby Australia. The fact is they're uh, a No, it does have an effect because, it of has no because effect. they're losing sponsorship because of it. No, they're not. Yes, they, they were only threatened yeah, yeah, well, by Alan Joyce because he didn't you know like Israel, Israel. You know Israel himself lost sponsorship. Well, he did, yes, that's fine. So it's entirely possible to lose sponsorship because of your statements. So, yeah, but Rugby Australia didn't lose sponsorship. No, but Israel himself lost sponsorship. But he sponsorship. was sacked, but that's different. He was sacked by but, Rugby but the, Australia. But the point is it's entirely possible for Rugby Australia to know that either they're going to lose sponsorship or it's going to be significantly devalued. Plus, I think, I think you've also got, it's got to be more direct. But you've it's also got to be got, more direct. You've also got bums on seats in stadiums. Like, you get... You Who get, is not going to go to the rugby because of Israel Folau's religious views? Well, seriously, people, people go to stadiums <laughs> because of star players. So yeah, mar but marquee players on football teams earn the money they do because an extra five thousand people go. Okay, so it's quite could, possible could that five thousand don't. And if you get five thousand people paying a hundred bucks each, you're up to half a million already. Like okay. that's a lot of money. All right. I couldn't imagine anyone as opposed to Israel Folau's views as myself right? <laughs> or yourself. Yeah. You cannot seriously tell me yeah. that you would not go to see the Wallabies play because of what Israel Folau posts on Facebook. I would. I, 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 I would. I would just give not, you an example. You would not. I would. Everyone I wouldn't would go to the tennis. Because it I wouldn't matter. go to the tennis yes, if I knew Kyrgios was playing. You were going to I wouldn't watch go. someone throw a ball around. No, but I wouldn't go to watch Kyrgios play. That if I had... I was but going at to least, go to the tennis. I knew he was on. Actually, has some integrity that he's saying what he actually believes in. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I couldn't but, say the same about Nick Kyrgios, right. whose warm up consists of playing video games. <laughs> let's let's move on to his cousin, Josiah. <laughs> so, should he did the did the did the St Gregory's have the right to sack him? No, they didn't. He he was a sort of a boy. A boarding school master, um, sort of. What was his role here? Let me see. Um, and he stated some crazy beliefs that he thinks the Catholic Church is a, a paganistic a ritual symbol. rooted in heresy, evil, and devil worship. And uh, his job was a tutor and boarding house supervisor at St Gregory's. So, Hugh, let me put it to you: the gay math teacher who was sacked by the Catholic school for being gay, yes. but who was silent as to his uh, – makes no criticism of the Catholic Church. Uh, no, no. It's, but can yeah. I just finish? Yeah, sorry. So he, he's silent, doesn't abuse the church, but lives a gay lifestyle, meets his boyfriend at the end of the, at the gate and they drive home together sort of thing. Catholic Church sacks him. I, said, I say no because it's not relevant to his job. 
But on this, with Josiah, uh, well, back to the gay math teacher. If the gay math teacher actually comes out um, on a very public forum abusing the Catholic Church, calling it a paganistic ritual root in heresy, evil and devil worship, I tend to think that maybe the school can sack him. I think it's... I'm not sure about the Hosea thing, but I think when you talk about the gay maths teacher, it's a shocking example. Are you seriously saying that Catholic Church should be allowed to sack gay people if they come out on social media? Because... No, the key, the key point no, of what but, I'm but, saying but is if, that we should be entitled, the individual in our society should be entitled to say their opinion. But if we go back, if we disallow that now because of commercial interests, hmm. we're going back to the Middle Ages where people were burned at the stake for staying, saying their opinions when Galileo was imprisoned yep. for coming up with the actual reality of how the earth revolves around the sun. You, in your architecture firm, one of your... One of your middle managers goes to a meeting with one of your potential clients and says, this architecture firm's shit, I wouldn't use them. They're terrible. <laughs> You'd be wanting to sack him. You'd be saying, you can't say that about our business well, and still be employed here. It's funny about that because uh, in past firms, I have had people on social media <laughs> stating criticism of the firm that they worked for. Yes. And it didn't result in them getting sacked. And I'm not sure that it should have been. I'm not sure that it should either. But I think if you say views that are not inherent to your job, mm. such as, say, your atheism or your fundamentalist mm. Christian religion, honestly, is really Israel Folau's views relevant to how well he throws around a football on a Sunday afternoon when he plays rugby, is his salary of a million dollars a year based solely on his um, rugby skills? I would say yes, it virtually is solely on his rugby skills. No one is giving him any portion of that a million dollars because they're interested in his religious views or they're interested in his ability to... counts for stuff. Well, he's not a bad role model. He's just stated his views, which a lot of people disagree with. We should be allowed to state views which are controversial and which people disagree with. And we should be allowed to criticise and... But not, but not, and we but should not be, censor. And boycott if we want to. Boycotting is censoring. We shouldn't no, censor. We, we should criticise, We can boycott our... our Participation. We can say, oh, the guy's a dickhead, I don't want to be part of it. I think if... And I the think, sponsors I think, I, can say, well, we don't want to be a part of this. We, we're going to boycott. That's fine. And then the employer can say, well, we were relying on that money, Israel, to pay you, and it's gone. So now we can't pay you. So that's why we wrote a contract that said it's all premised on this money coming in, and if you fuck it up, we can't pay you. So that's I why think, we've got this here, Israel. I think that would be reasonable if they did lose their sponsorship if their income did go down right. and then they didn't have enough money and then they couldn't pay him quite, a mu- quite as much, I think that would be reasonable. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the flying off the handle, the de-platforming of people, mm-hmm. the censoring of people and sacking people because of their views, I mm-hmm. think we should avoid that. But if there's a commercial reality where you don't have enough money because Alan Joyce actually didn't sponsor you, whereas he still has sponsored them, then fine. I think that's fine. I think it's just where you draw the line, and I probably just disagree with you guys a little mm. bit on where you draw that line. Yeah, mm. but I think that the fact that Alan Joyce had threatened to pull the sponsorship ought to be enough. You know, the, he's the got ma- to pull the, it, the ma- and then he gets a sack. Sorry, 
he's got to pull that sponsorship, and if he pulls the sponsorship, then maybe you consider giving Israel Folau the sack. You don't well, just let the sponsor well, but, threaten you with what, what you're allowed to say. But as a business, you can't wait for the disaster. You need to be able to say to people in advance, here's the picture. If this happens, then we must sack you because That's there true. is a real risk of us going bust. That's true, but I don't believe it should be up to businesses to have that sort of power. I think the government should legislate so mm. employees are protected so that they can say their own opinion. Mm. And if a, gov- if a business doesn't have the income then it's just a natural economic reality that people don't get paid as much. Mm. Righto. We've said our piece. Have you got any more? On, on, no, that's no. about it. Yeah. There you go. In I the can't ch- believe I'm, I'm, <laughs> we had a nice disagreement. That's I'm, agree, I'm agreeing with Trevor the whole time. This is getting rather frightening. <laughs> well, and by the way, I'm not a complete socialist. I just honestly believe <laughs> that yet. we should have... No, I honestly believe socialism should be confined to education and healthcare mm. and military and that sort of shit. Mm. Okay. Right. What else have I got on the list here? Uh, you wanted to brief. Well, you wanted to briefly mention Venezuela. Yeah, I uh, listened well, after, to after the, I after I nagged your ear off last time. <laughs> I listened this morning to the Economist, the Intelligence, oh, yeah. and they had a uh, brief uh, five or ten minute section on Venezuela. And there are millions of Venezuelan immigrants who have crossed the border into Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Doesn't. I'll, doesn't deter from my argument at all. No, your argument. Have you? St- it, it, you cannot tell me you're still sticking to your guns to well, the argument is, you what, presented last remind time. Remind me, steel man, my argument, please. What was my argument? Your argument was that American um, sanctions on Venezuela and their in, inverted commas attempted coups were um, causing all the hardship in Venezuela. No. <laughs> That's not what my argument was, Hugh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I admitted that Maduro was corrupt and inefficient. Well, and I think it took some no, time no, before you admitted abs- that. did not. Right off the bat, I admitted that. But what I said was that the financial siege by America meant that they couldn't get out of it and they are a country which, with all of their resources, could just, they're so lucky with their oil reserves that if they were just left alone with their own assets, unconfiscated, they could get out of trouble. So I admitted to corruption and inefficiency and whatever of the government, yeah. but basically that the key significant thing stopping them from recovering was the financial siege and... I maintain that's still the case. So in, in all of history, when there's been physical sieges of cities and towns, the people inside often resorted to cannibalism. Yeah, exactly. They ended like, up starving. Yeah. They were really, really tough situations. And the people inside didn't say, I blame our government for their poor mismanagement. They were going, I blame the fucking Romans for not letting us get food and water <laughs> in and out of this place. Like, that... So... So my point is, you can give me all of the statistics of horror stories in Venezuela, yeah, and it doesn't alter the fact that I say uh, I'm blaming the US government for their financial siege as causing it. Yeah, but so, the financial sanctions are quite minor from no. from the American government. <laughs> we're not going, Hugh. We said briefly, and you were going to ask. If, well, uh, okay. We let me let me just present you one fact. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Now it's now. What year is it? Yeah. 2019. 2019. 6th of August. According to the Misery Index, 
yeah. in 2013. Yeah. Venezuela ranked as the top spot globally with the highest misery index score. Inflation slash unemployment, buying power of a citizen. They had shortages included necessities such as toilet paper, milk and flour. They affected healthcare in Venezuela, the University of Caracas, the capital. Ceasing to perform surgeries due to lack of supplies in 2014. The government made it difficult to import drugs, medical supplies. Many Venezuelans died of died avoidable deaths um, and it you, you entered a, an economic recession in you, you 2014. Could, you could paint a picture three it's not times. A painting, as, it's no, not no. a picture though. That's no, the reality. It was you, the worst you, in the world. You, of course with, it is. With the highest reserves of oil in the world. Yeah, but, but as we've already said, if, it the, wasn't America, if the US was government not, doesn't let you sell ago. it, it doesn't matter that you've got the highest reserves. But they didn't do that in yes. 2013. Their sanctions prior to 2015 were only on two or three individuals who were basically hoarding money for themselves. <laughs> okay. I can't go into the historical uh, timeline of sanctions, but all I'm saying is you can paint a very accurate picture of a complete disaster in Venezuela, and I admit... To it's a the, complete disaster. Exactly. The question is, who caused it? So just Chavez. telling, just telling me... What a disaster it is, and I'm but saying, a, what a, I'm point saying is it was blame a the financial siege, and you're saying don't blame the financial siege. I'm so not saying the financial saying, siege helped things. Of yeah. course it hindered it. Yeah. But the, the, it was a basket case in 2013. Well, Two, six years ago, it was a basket case as a, as a but, result but of its policies you GDP figures in 2003. We can't go into the specifics of that anymore. You asked whether anybody's opinion had changed. And mine, has, mine hasn't. And just painting... A, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is just showing that the place is a even worse basket case since we last spoke doesn't alter the fact that we're still arguing over who caused it. Yeah, but um, when I spoke... When I was talking to you last time, we talked about the um, nationalisation of all the different industries. Yeah. And so a constant problem in Venezuela for the last 10 years has been the shortages in power. And that resulted one year after they nationalised the uh, electricity grid. They've had constant shortages in power. They've done the same with the cement industry. They did the same with the oil industry. Every industry they nationalised and they made, at the same time they made employment conditions impossible to sack anyone. So they, they engaged, they engaged in socialism but they engaged in exactly all the wrong parts of socialism that, you, that, that were uneconomic and were um, sort of uh, the opposite of what economic wisdom dictates, the laws of supply and demand. Can we agree to differ? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to disagree. I, I just wanted to say that the problems in Venezuela have been caused like up to 20 years prior to, mm. prior to now. Mm. They, were, they were caused with the, sh the policies and of And I Chavez. disagree. And we've been through that before, and I'm not going there again. <laughs> Go for it. Right. I've been picking through my topics here while you're um, – you can take your headphones off if you like because uh, I'll just let you know if there's something that uh, needs to be done here. So let me just see. What other topics did we have? Um, anything that you wanted to talk about, Hugh, that's taking your fancy at all? Have you looked at um, 
Boris and Brexit? Do you have any opinions about that? I don't have any particular views on Boris, apart from that he looks like another Trump-like character, which is a, a, quite a worry. Right. Um, nothing strong on that. Okay. Nothing Actually, particularly mm. strong. Did either of you see um, last week tonight, last week or not? No. No. Um, John Oliver had a very good attack of Boris. And he um, used one particular incident where Boris was in trouble for saying something. I can't even remember what the hell it was. But the media had been camped out the front of his place for days. And eventually Boris took down cups of tea to Azure. And he says, look, I'm not going to answer your question, but I'll give you a cup of tea. Would you like a cup of tea? And within a minute or two, he had completely disarmed this pack of media and had them laughing with him, Mm. you know. And that was really quite frightening to see how he had managed to turn them around very quickly. Mm. Mm. I did a podcast with Cameron Riley. On yeah, Bullshit I still Filter. get to listen to that. Yeah. So I did have cause to read a fair bit about Boris. Mm. And it's uh, a very upper middle class, well connected British guy we're dealing with here. I mean, he went to, you know, expat school in Brussels. Uh, his father was involved in some European bank or commission of some sort he went on to um eton and then on to oxford just super connected Mm. um and really uh as i see it he's a clever guy and uh, very intelligent but probably very lazy and this whole he took on this persona of this buffoon this clown this sort of character at a relatively early age in his teens and and worked it as his stick and i see it as a way of dealing with things where if you didn't want to work hard you could say stuff and um if it didn't quite work out well he's oh, just joking about that and you wouldn't be responsible for everything that you said because nobody was ever really sure if you were serious or not and uh, so that was an advantage to him. And he's a complete liar. Like, he just fabricated articles for the newspapers he was writing on. He's got zero conviction about anything. And he's completely interested in himself. So he's Trump-like in those areas, but um, but just with a bit of extra charm and, and an obvious intelligence and a solid education in the classics and, and whatever. Yeah. So, um, but a man with... Com- without conviction and completely selfish and uh, poor United Kingdom headed for a world of of hurt with that guy in charge because he does not have their best interests at heart at all and he's not prepared to work for them. Mm. Well, Well, do we we know that? Yes, based on past performance, if past performance means anything. What I was going to say about the whole thing was I thought it was very interesting what Richard Dawkins said about the whole Brexit. Mm -hmm. What did he say? Uh, He said that... um, it is very troubling to think that democracy results in in that sort of outcome and that people are voting for something they don't understand, mm. they're not educated on, and how they can vote for such an outcome which is so against their own self-interest. And we see this with Trump in the United States and with mm. Boris in the UK and with, Bre- and with the whole Brexit thing. Mm. So I found that quite troubling and and sort of uh, at odds with my own personal views about democracy, which I think is one of the, the greatest things that we've ever 
we've had happen to us in the last hundred years. But it is it is a consideration when you consider that how did how did the UK vote for for Brexit when it is so antithetical to what what's in their best interest? Yeah, because Dawkins said. Disaster. Dawkins said, "I'm not an economist. I don't know what the I, you know. We pay professionals to work this out. You shouldn't yes. be asking me as a citizen to decide this. I do yes. remember him saying that. Yeah, something on that's lines. pretty much what he said. Mm. He said most um, people in the UK, including myself." Don't understand what's involved in this decision. Mm. It shouldn't have been put to a referendum. It shouldn't be up to the people to decide such a complex issue. Mm. I tend to agree with that. Mm. And then it raises the whole question of how did we vote in Scott Morrison and all of that sort of thing. How did we vote in? How did Donald Trump (laughs) get voted in? I can Mm. scarcely imagine. I was jumping on a plane in one state when Hillary Clinton was ahead in the polls, I got off the plane in another state to find out that Donald Trump, Donald Trump was president mm. and I couldn't quite believe it. I just thought, what's happened to the world in that time? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, we were just before you um, came in, I was talking about Facebook and how uh, one of my listeners – well, I made the statement that young people today are tuning off Facebook – and that it's for old fogies like us. Who they're are, on Instagram. Yeah, they're on Instagram. Uh, what they're on is um, uh, YouTube, 80, 85%, Instagram, 72%, Snapchat, 69%. And I came across this article about YouTube. So this is where our young people are getting information from. It's riddled with conspiracy theories. Yeah. So and It's not just moon landing conspiracy theories either. Exactly. Yeah. So on the topic of climate change, some guys did some research and um, did some searching on YouTube to see what they would get as a result of different search terms. And uh, they used a service called Tor, T-O-R, which is an online anonymization tool. So it wouldn't look at their history and give them something to suit their history. It was like a clean slate, if you like. So let me just see the search terms that they used. Uh, Ten search terms were used on YouTube. Climate, climate change, climate engineering, climate manipulation, climate modification, climate science, geoengineering, global warming, chemtrails and climate hacking. So the last two were non-scientific. And they basically got... uh, So there's ten search terms and they got 20 results, roughly, per search term. And remarkably, only 89 of the videos were found to support the scientific consensus. 107 opposed the scientific consensus on YouTube. So um, there we go. Not uh, so... Kids. Staggering, yeah. yeah. So, kids, if you're watching YouTube, only use it for entertainment because it's not decent information. So, a we have the problem of our echo chamber where we're getting our news from Facebook because mm. we're old, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and working class, what like, um, and because there was a difference with Facebook as well. The more working class you were, the more you use Facebook um, amongst the younger crowd, anyway. Uh, so, we've had this problem of echo chambers giving us what we want to hear yes and now no echo chamber on youtube and riddled with false information so uh, you know it's like after the morrison one you know i was shaking my head and talking with different friends who don't normally talk politics and 
my wife was, and they would say, oh, you know, Scott Morrison seemed like a, a nice guy, you know, seemed, uh, yeah. seemed drinking the beer. And he pulled off this daggy dad thing that yeah. actually, because people fell for it. It just shows how wrong my instincts are, and mm. I have to admit that, you know, as a camera is right in my face, I have to admit <laughs> my, <laughs> my instincts were totally wrong. <laughs> Don't trust my opinion. I was totally wrong. I thought even going up to election eve as I got my hot dog as I voted, I came home and I said, stay tuned for the absolute landslide decimation of the Liberal Party, the yeah. coalition. They'll be out of office mm. for at least... Two elections. I thought it was going to be an absolute landslide. I couldn't see how any any sane person could yeah. vote for him. Yeah, and yet, and yet, there was the whole Queensland thing with the Bob Ground going up, and uh, the um, it really was a climate change thing where the Labor Party lost a lot by not having a sensible opinion on climate change. They were kind of. Against, they were kind of supporting we should do something about climate change, but then, oh, yes, the Ardani mine's all right and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they were perceived as, uh, you know, who would vote for them? Based on that, no one would vote for them. You'd only vote against them. So they lost a lot of votes because of that. Lost a lot for Ardani. They lost a lot through um, dividend imputation. Uh, the retirements. This, yeah. the, it was the retirements tax that cost them. That was a suicide um, yeah. Mission wasn't it? But why why know, come out with that? But when you look at the numbers of people that were actually affected by that, it was barely three or five percent of the population were going to be impacted by that change. Mm. It's just that Morrison turned it around and he called it a retirement tax, and that's what won him the election. Was he managed to rebrand it and rebadge it? And put it out there again. And the other thing that I found ridiculous is that the Labor Party didn't have the guts to go in with an inheritance tax, which is a perfectly reasonable income tax. I honestly believe we should have it. Mm. But you had these people that were saying, oh, we'll, we'll get death duties if Labor wins. Mm. I think it's a sad indictment on, a demo on our democracy that as I listen to you say this, and I wonder if you had the same experience, when Scott mentioned an inheritance tax, mm. I just thought to myself, no. Don't mm. mention any tax. Mm. If you're going to an election and you want to win, you don't want to mention any tax. You, well, you see, lives or else they're okay. going. To, the opposition is going to make such a huge deal of it. It's going to be a problem, and you're going to lose. Okay, Labor needs to change the mood on tax because the Liberals will always be able to say that Labor are a high taxing option, and they are because they are the Labor Party. Yes. So they they can't keep shying away from it and they need to s turn around and say, yes, more tax because guess what? You get schools, you get roads, you get facilities, etc. Mm. They have to change and change the nature of the feeling out there about tax. Otherwise, they'll get smashed every time because LNP will just legitimately say they're the high tax guys and they can't say, no, we're not. So they have to change it to say, actually... We are, but there's, you know, come along with us and let us explain why that's a good idea. But yeah. then there's no salesman in in the parliament at all now. There's, nobody could sell an idea. I so. just feel I just feel depressed that mm. in my uh, younger years we had uh, Bob Hawke, we mm. had Paul Keating, mm. we had people who were quite inspirational and mm. who did wonderful things for the country. Mm. 
and now you have the face with a choice between Bill Shorten, <laughs> Tanya Plibersek, and then Scott Morrison. Well, Anthony Albanese and, now. Uh, yeah, but that's yeah. what it was at the last yeah. election. Yeah. I don't have so much of a problem with Anthony Alba- Albanese, but right. well, we're not really we're not really looking at the inspirational leaders that mm. we had in the past. Mm. Even I'd take John Hewson over any of these guys that we've mm. got currently mm. currently here, and I, I'm, I'm wondering whether. You know, we're in this position where I feel like you've got News Corp kind of dominating the the media and they're dominating and the agenda of the coalition that you, you don't – it's not a good recipe for good government. Mm. You know, the other thing is we keep talking about uh, Facebook and the sort of community media where now people can create their own media or exchange ideas more easily. We don't need – Newspapers, so the power of the Murdoch press should be diminishing. Yes, as I I said to the twelfth man. Yeah. Often, when you're looking though at Facebook, for example, what's being shared are articles from the newspapers. Like the vast majority of items are just reshares of either Guardian or Murdoch newspapers. That's true. That's what's going on there. So. Only this podcast, Hugh, is prepared to <laughs> provide independent analysis and original content. I can look at the camera and say, that's not true. Don't believe that rubbish. Well, Please actually, donate. But, well, yeah. well, hang on a second. But The Rationalist produced something recently, a yes. PDF. Oh, did you see the, uh, the article? I saw the article. Did you read it? Well, when I clicked on it, it wanted seven bucks or something from me, and I thought, I'll just ask Hugh what it's about. <laughs> Please don't ask me. You haven't read it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you listen to the rationalists have put out some interim <laughs> little paper on something and I, I can't remember what it's okay on. all right okay well you know how, you know how we do mean. have a um we do have a we've we we're using our vast wealth of um you know a couple of hundred dollars to commission articles from academics right. we have an article coming out on political correctness Mm-hmm. which I think is quite interesting because it's written by an academic from Monash University. I tend to agree with the contents where it criticises quite vehemently uh, identity politics because it identity, it, identity politics uh, actually, as it's um, progressed now by groups like Black Lives Matter, and mm-hmm. uh, is often um, aimed at achieving the opposite of what its goals originally were, mm-hmm. which were overcoming a historical imbalance. Mm. Now it's really about pursuing the interests of various interest groups and calling people bigots and deplatforming people. And it, um, so that article is going to come out soon. That's going to be very interesting, the reaction to that. Mm. Given that we are all members of a particular interest group and the article pretty much criticises the role of interest groups in pursuing their own aims. Yes. So... Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to see your reactions to those. Well, one of our, or one of my things here has been uh, anti-identity politics and encouraging the working class to coalesce in a class warfare where you've at least got the lower working class regaining some, uh, taking on the one percenters. Okay. Sounds a bit Che Guevara. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah, but it does. You, you Would you like to have a spot of tennis on your tennis court, Trevor? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've always admitted 
my middle class surroundings. <laughs> Very white bread here in well, leafy western suburbs of the, of Brisbane. That's that's true. Yeah. You're a self-made man. Sorry. No one gave you your money. But Sorry. don't you think that the way the one percenters are behaving right now, that they're asking for a Che Guevara moment? Oh, I think I think there's definitely an unbelievable imbalance when you have something like I can't remember the statistics, but it's fifty percent. If you took up fifty percent of the world's population and added up their wealth. Yeah, you end up with it. It would add up to the the wealth of Jeff Bezos and a couple of others. Yeah, and so that imbalance is shocking. Yeah, isn't it? It It's shocking. It's dangerous. Yeah, and what do we do about that? I I, take it off them. I don't know what to do about that. Take it off them. I know that a lot of those guys, uh, Bill Gates, for example, Mm. is committed to distributing most of his wealth to others, Mm. which I think is a good thing. It's only. Two or three of them, uh, Gates, Buffett, and maybe one or two others, who have made significant inroads into their wealth, like 50% in the case of those guys. Yeah. But you, it quickly drops away to the next best is 10%. Like, yeah. It, and uh, so, yeah, they're, uh, they're the odd ones out. So, and Bezos is spending all his money on mm. space exploration, mm. which he said that, you know, he's even said in an interview... Mm. He said that the only way he can see to use all his financial resources is to is to look for space exploration. Well, you know, um, Stephen Hawking said that that was that should be the major priority of our civilization. Yeah, but I don't think Stephen Hawking look would have had a idea that you should have a private wealthy person financing in that. Surely, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, we've got seven people watching us. Right. And they're going for it in the chat room. They're, <laughs> really? This just going left, right, right. and centre. Yeah. I, I don't want to so. know what they say about me. <laughs> no, please going, don't tell me. Like, no, I think I smashed you on can, Venezuela, can, by can, the way. Uh, you, and I'd like to... <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> and Karen doesn't like our, our, my socialist ideas, I don't think. But anyway, they're going no, for it in there. Like, no, that's good. Give it, to him <laughs> on his, give it to him on his socialism. He's out of control. Yeah. He's a Noam Chomskyite. <laughs> and he needs to be pulled back in line. Yeah. He's got, he's got no idea. Does he sleep on the streets in Adelaide Street? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I just want to make sure that nobody sleeps on the streets. That's the point. So, <laughs> yeah. well, hey, I, agree, we, I agree with you there. We, we might pull this up soon, I think, because um, Scott, you've got to get to bed. I need to get yeah. to bed, yes. Um, but, uh, well, I've lashed out on some, um, some proper capitalist gear and our feed is now working beautifully. It's been a green light. Obviously, the streaming is working. I'm declaring this a success now, Scott. The whole so can I just say, can I just say that uh, everyone who listens to this and supports this, that we should thank them for their support yes, and that it's patrons. amazing. We've got an award-winning podcast here. We so, do. Trevor, I thank you and Scott for that. Mm. That's you. awesome. Um, podcast and broadcast. Podcast yeah. and broadcast, yeah. <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable for my face being broadcast all over Facebook, <laughs> but uh, and so do most people watching it. Mm. But I think it's I think it's excellent what you're doing in helping mm. redress the massive imbalance in favour of, uh, yes, you know, mystical beliefs. The, and yes, the religious like that. media. This is good practice, Hugh. Just because yes. I found like I was very relaxed after 200 episodes of doing podcasting. Yes. Press the button, let's go. Yeah. But once a camera was on, I really? actually felt a little bit more nervous initially. Now I'm really used to it. Yeah. But I just it was just an extra thing to get used to. So yeah. Good practice for people like you and others who will hopefully come onto the show. Well, I feel quite. So, I, yeah, I feel hmm. very exposed by this whole thing. Yeah. You know, 
what if people see me here? And, you know, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Well, I've got this camera gonna, looking down at me. Jen's mm. got to get used to it because you're on the list for the National Secular Lobby, aren't you? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm on that. Yeah, I, I, I had yeah. a release on that. Right. I wanted to know what your guys' thoughts were on the abortion um, decriminalisation in New South Wales. That's what I've recently we been arguing about, yeah. John Dixon, about. And the do you think it's a scare campaign when um, groups come out and say that? the legislation will lead to because after 22 weeks you need two doctors Hmm. to sanction the abortion for whatever reasons are involved, whether it's life-threatening reasons to the fetus or to the mother. Um, And that's caused people like John Dixon to come out and say that um, that means there's nothing stopping the... um, Killing of an unborn baby up to one day before birth. That is the exact quote from Glenn Davies, Archbishop of Sydney. I think that's just horrific, no, that's, horrific that's uh, just scaremongering scare yeah. by, by the church. And I think that's really what's um, pushing people away from it, those horrific views which are deliberately misleading. All right, what do you think if a mother is late in getting scans and at 24 weeks discovers that the child has Down syndrome and she goes to a doctor and says, I'd like termination? What what do you think the doctor is likely to say? I don't know. I don't know. And the doctor, it's just up to the doctor then? Well, it's up to two doctors. Yes, the two doctors. So... Just before you came, I referred to a study done in the UK and there was 391 obstetric consultants in the UK asking them how they'd respond to different things. And sure. they had a 24-week sort of cut-off period. Right. So um, for Down syndrome, uh, 60% would offer termination at 24 weeks and this fell to 13% after 24 weeks. So 60% would offer a Down syndrome termination at 24 weeks. So 40% wouldn't. So it's an interesting situation where there'll be some doctor shopping going on because you can get two obstetric consultants fully qualified with completely different opinions. It's a very subjective test. It, it, it is, and I think that's why it comes down to the views of the mother and the family that's involved so much. And when everyone says it's only two doctors, it's not just two doctors, it's the mother. It's the mother and it's, it's the, Three. it's the, mm. for instance, my wife and I, mm. both of us would have been horrified to have a child that had a major disability. Mm. I think we would have been probably at the extreme end where we would have terminated even if it was after 24 weeks. Mm. And I think most people would disagree with us on that, but I think we're entitled to have that view. Mm. And if doctors... Uh, I would rather it be put to doctors rather than blanket mm. a blanket rule by legislation that you can't terminate or you can terminate. I think it should be up to doctors and I think it's a good balance when you have two doctors assisting the parents in making that decision. It's a heart-rending decision. Mm. It really is heart-rending. What do you do? If you're going to give birth to a child that has a major disability, you're signing yourself up to a lifelong commitment in mm. some cases and I think you have to actually make that decision that it's you're going to do that. Mm. Uh, I think it just necessarily has to be a very flexible system. And if that 
has subjectivity in there, it, it has to have it because if yeah. you try and be objective and cut and dried and 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 try and legislate all of the possibilities, uh, invariably you'll miss some and you'll arrive at an injustice. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Mm. As someone who's lost a child, mm. I think mm. it's one of those things where it's you cannot legislate for every every different situation that happens. Mm. And I think the worst problem with our societies of, as they've evolved has been blanket bans mm. on in, on things. So blanket ban on abortion, uh, criminalisation of homosexuality and the absolutes that have defined our legislation in the past, they're, they're a major problem. Mm. So to get rid of those is a really a good thing. Mm. Right. Well, on that note, Hugh... <laughs> Velvet Glove, let's sign off. Thank you to everybody in the chat room. Uh, as I said at the beginning, a friend of mine said to me, uh, who's involved in podcasting and stuff, who listens to a lot, he said, oh, be careful, Trevor. When there's a chat room and you've got people on live, you can sometimes get distracted and spend so much time with them <laughs> that you lose track of your normal podcasting audience. So, uh, so maybe I ignored the chat room a little bit too much, but you guys <laughs> have really gone for it and had your own really? amazing <laughs> thread in there and dealt with things yourself. So um, I look forward which, to having a read Which is really good to see. And um, so not only on Facebook, but we're also streaming to YouTube, uh, really? hopefully. And also, are you aware of Twitch TV? No, I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, there's a thing called Twitch TV. The young people are watching Twitch TV. Fabulous. You can you can watch other people gaming on Twitch TV. Like right. instead of just playing a video game yourself, you can watch other people. And wow. hopefully you can watch this podcast on there. So when I told my son that I was streaming onto Twitch TV, he was impressed that I even knew what Twitch TV was. <laughs> I'm actually very impressed, Trevor. I can't believe that. Wife, he said to his wife, hey, Dad's going to be on Twitch. <laughs> he even knows what it is. Well, I've learned something tonight, so that's good. Yeah. So I say, buggy you, Q&A. If you don't want to invite us, we'll just create our own show. So, Hugh, good on you for coming on. Thank Scott, you, good on you. And thank you, for dear listener, for listening out there. Thank you live streamers for watching and we'll catch you next time bye for now thanks very much for tuning in bye now thanks all bye fist glove you two have not experienced horror until you have experienced the full weight of a hard bottom crushing you well dear listener did you enjoy that episode of the podcast if you did i've got a favor to ask uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from... $1.50 Australian to, I think, 
$10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.